Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 24 of The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tony Addison. The story continued in several narratives. One, the narrative of Hester Pinhorn, cook, in the service of Count Fosco, taken down from her own statement. I am sorry to say that I have never learnt to read or write. I have been a hard-working woman all my life, and have kept a good character. I know that it is a sin and wickedness to say the thing which is not and I will truly beware of doing so on this occasion. All that I know I will tell, and I humbly beg the gentleman who takes this down to put my language right as he goes on, and to make allowances for my being no scholar. In this last summer I happened to be out of place through no fault of my own, and I heard of a situation as plain cook at number five, Forest Road, St. John's Wood. I took the place on trial. My master's name was Fosco. My mistress was an English lady. He was Count and she was Countess. There was a girl to do housemaid's work when I got there. She was not over-clean or tidy, but there was no harm in her. I and she were the only servants in the house. Our master and mistress came after we got in, and as soon as they did come, we were told downstairs that company was expected from the country. The company was my mistress's niece, and the back bedroom on the first floor was got ready for her. My mistress mentioned to me that Lady Glyde, that was her name, was in poor health, and that I must be particular in my cooking accordingly. She was to come that day as well as I can remember. But whatever you do, don't trust my memory in the matter. I am sorry to say it's no use asking me about days of the month and such like. Except Sundays, half my time I take no heed of them, being a hard-working woman and no scholar. All I know is Lady Glyde came, and when she did come, a fine fright she gave us all surely. I don't know how Master brought her to the house, being hard at work at the time, but he did bring her in the afternoon, I think, and the housemaid opened the door to them and showed them into the parlour. Before she had been long down in the kitchen again with me, we heard a hurry-scurry upstairs, and the parlour bell ringing like mad, and my mistress's voice calling out for help. We both ran up and there we saw the lady laid on the sofa with her face ghastly white and her hands fast clenched and her head drawn down to one side she had been taken with a sudden fright my mistress said and master he told us she was in a fit of convulsions 
I ran out, knowing the neighbourhood a little better than the rest of them, to fetch the nearest doctor's help. The nearest help was at Goodrick's and Garth's, who worked together as partners, and had a good name and connection, as I have heard, all round St. John's Wood. Mr. Goodrick was in, and he came back with me directly. It was some time before he could make himself of much use. The poor unfortunate lady fell out of one fit into another, and went on so till she was quite wearied out, and as helpless as a newborn babe. We then got her to bed. Mr. Goodrick went away to his house for medicine, and came back again in a quarter of an hour or less. Besides the medicine, he brought a bit of hollow mahogany wood with him, shaped like a kind of trumpet, and after waiting a little while, he put one end over the lady's heart, and the other to his ear, and listened carefully. When he had done, he says to my mistress, who was in the room, this is a very serious case, he says. I recommend you to write to Lady Glyde's friends directly. My mistress says to him, Is it heart disease? And he says, Yes, heart disease of a most dangerous kind. He told her exactly what he thought was the matter, which I was not clever enough to understand. But I know this. He ended by saying that he was afraid neither his help nor any other doctor's help was likely to be of much service. My mistress took this ill news more quietly than my master. He was a big, fat, odd sort of elderly man who kept birds and white mice and spoke to them as if they were so many Christian children. He seemed terribly cut up by what had happened. Ah, poor Lady Glyde, poor dear Lady Glyde, he says, and went stalking about wringing his fat hands, more like a play-actor than a gentleman. For one question, my mistress asked the doctor about the lady's chances of getting grand. He asked a good fifty at least. I declare he quite tormented us all, and when he was quiet at last, out he went into the bit of back garden, picking trumpery little nosegays, and asking me to take them upstairs and make the sick-room look pretty with them. <laughs> As if that did any good. I think he must have been, at times, a little soft in his head. But he was not a bad master. He had a monstrous civil tongue of his own, and a jolly, easy, coaxing way with him. I liked him a deal better than my mistress. She was a hard one, if ever there was a hard one yet. Towards night-time, the lady roused up a little. She had been so wearied out before that by the convulsions that she never stirred hand or foot or spoke a word to anybody. She moved in the bed now and stared about her at the room and us in it. She must have been a nice-looking lady when well, with light hair and blue eyes and all that. Her rest was troubled at night at least so I heard from my mistress, who sat up alone with her. I only went in once, before going to bed, to see if I could be of any use, and then she was talking to herself in a confused, rambling manner. She seemed to want sadly to speak to somebody who was absent from her somewhere, 
I couldn't catch the name the first time, and the second time Master knocked at the door with his regular mouthful of questions and another of his trumpery nosegays. When I went in early the next morning, the lady was clean worn out again and lay in a kind of faint sleep. Mr. Goodrick brought his partner, Mr. Garth, with him to advise. They said she must not be disturbed out of her rest on any account. They asked my mistress many questions at the other end of the room about what the lady's health had been in past times, and who had attended her, and whether she had ever suffered much and long together under distress of mind. I remember my mistress said yes to that last question. And Mr. Goodrick looked at Mr. Garth and shook his head, and Mr. Garth looked at Mr. Goodrick and shook his head. They seemed to think that the distress might have something to do with the mischief at the lady's heart. She was but a frail thing to look at, poor creature. Very little strength at any time, I should say. Very little strength. Later, on the same morning, when she woke, the lady took a sudden turn, and got seemingly a great deal better. I was not let in again to see her. No more was the housemaid, for the reason that she was not to be disturbed by strangers. What I heard of her being better was through my master. He was in wonderful good spirits about the change, and looked in at the kitchen window from the garden, with his great big curly-brimmed white hat on, to go out. "'Good, Mrs. Cook,' says he. "'Lady Clyde is better. My mind is more easy than it was, and I am going out to stretch my big legs with a sunny little summer walk. Shall I order for you? Shall I mark it for you, Mrs. Cook? What are you making there?' A nice tart for dinner, or oh, much crust, if you please, much crisp crust, my dear, that melts and crumbles delicious in the mouth. That was his way. He was past sixty, and fond of pastry. Just think of that. The doctor came again in the forenoon, and saw for himself that Lady Glyde had woke up better. He forbid us to talk to her, or to let her talk to us in case she was that way disposed, saying she must be kept quiet before all things, and encouraged to sleep as much as possible. She did not seem to want to talk whenever I saw her, except overnight, when I couldn't make out what she was saying. She seemed too much worn down. Mr. Goodrick was not nearly in such good spirits about her as master. He said nothing when he came downstairs, except that he would call again at five o'clock about that time, which was before Master came home again. The bell rang hard from the bedroom, and my mistress ran out into the landing, and called to me to go for Mr. Goodrick, and tell him the lady had fainted. I got on my bonnet and shawl, when, as good luck would have it, the doctor himself came to the house for his promised visit. I let him in, and went upstairs along with him. Lady Glyde was just as usual, says my mistress to him at the door, she was awake and looking about her in a strange forlorn manner when I heard her give a sort of half-cry and she fainted in a moment. The doctor went up to the bed and stooped down over the sick lady. He looked very serious all on a sudden at the sight of her and put his hand on her heart. 
my mistress stared hard in mr goodrick's face not dead says she whispering and turning all of a tremble from head to foot yes says the doctor very quiet and grave dead i was afraid it would happen suddenly when i examined her heart yesterday my mistress stepped back from the bedside while he was speaking and trembled and trembled again dead she whispers to herself dead so suddenly dead so soon what will the count say mr goodrick advised her to go downstairs and quiet herself a little you have been sitting up all night says he and your nerves are shaken this person says he meaning me this person will stay in the room till i can send for the necessary assistance my mistress did as he told her i must prepare the count she says i must carefully prepare the count and so she left us shaking from head to foot and went out your master is a foreigner says mr goodrick when my mistress had left us does he understand about registering the death i can't rightly tell sir says i but i should think not the doctor considered a minute and then says he i don't usually do such things says he but it may save the family trouble in this case if i register the death myself i shall pass the district office in half an hour's time and i can easily look in mention if you please that i will do so yes sir says i with thanks i'm sure for your kindness in thinking of it you don't mind staying here till i can send you the proper person says he no sir says i i'll stay with the poor lady till then i suppose nothing more could be done sir than was done says i no says he nothing she must have suffered sadly before ever i saw her the case was hopeless when i was called in ah dear me we all come to it sooner or later don't we sir says i he gave no answer to that he didn't seem to care about talking he said good day and went out i stopped by the bedside from that time till the time when mr goodrick sent the person in as he had promised she was by name jane gould i considered her to be a respectable-looking woman she made no remark except to say that she understood what was wanted of her and that she had winded a many of them in her time how master bore the news when he first heard it is more than i can tell not having been present when i did see him he looked awfully overcome by it to be sure he sat quiet in a corner with his fat hands hanging over his thick knees and his head down and his eye looking at nothing he seemed not so much sorry as scared and dazed like by what had happened my mistress managed all that was to be done about the funeral it must have cost a sight of money the coffin in particular being most beautiful the dead lady's husband was away as we heard in foreign parts but my mistress being her aunt settled it with her friends in the country cumberland i think that she should be buried there in the same grave along with her mother everything was done handsomely in respect of the funeral i say again and master went down to attend the burying in the country himself he looked grand in his deep mourning 
with his big solemn face and his slow walk and his broad hat-band <laughs> that he did in conclusion i have to say in answer to questions put to me one that neither i nor my fellow-servant ever saw my master give lady glyde any medicine himself two that he was never to my knowledge and belief left alone in the room with lady glyde three that i am not able to say what caused the sudden fright which my mistress informed me had seized the lady on her first coming into the house the cause was never explained either to me or to my fellow-servant the above statement has been read over in my presence i have nothing to add to it or to take away from it i say on my oath as a christian woman this is the truth signed hester pinholm her mark x two the narrative of the doctor to the registrar of the sub-district in which the undermentioned death took place i hereby certify that i attended lady glyde aged twenty-one last birthday that i last saw her on thursday the twenty-fifth july eighteen fifty that she died on the same day at number five forest road st john's wood and that the cause of her death was aneurysm duration of disease not known signed alfred goodrick prop title m r c s ing l s a address twelve croydon gardens st john's wood three the narrative of jane gould i was the person sent in by mr goodrick to do what was right and needful by the remains of a lady who had died at the house named in the certificate which precedes this i found the body in charge of the servant hester pinhorn i remained with it and prepared it at the proper time for the grave it was laid in the coffin in my presence and i afterwards saw the coffin screwed down previous to its removal when that had been done and not before i received what was due to me and left the house i refer persons who may wish to investigate my character to mr goodrick he will bear witness that i can be trusted to tell the truth signed jane gould Four the narrative of the tombstone sacred to the memory of laura lady glyde wife of sir percival glyde bart of blackwater park hampshire and daughter of the late philip fairley s of limeridge house in this parish born march twenty seventh eighteen twenty nine married december twenty second eighteen forty nine died july twenty fifth eighteen fifty five the narrative of walter hartwright early in the summer of eighteen fifty i and my surviving companions left the wilds and forests of central america for home arrived at the coast we took ship there for england the vessel was wrecked in the gulf of mexico i was among the few saved from the sea it was my third escape from peril of death death by disease death by the indians death by drowning all three had approached me all three had passed me by the survivors of the wreck were rescued by an american vessel bound for liverpool the ship reached her port 
on the thirteenth day of october eighteen fifty we landed late in the afternoon and i arrived in london the same night these pages are not the record of my wanderings and my dangers away from home the motives which led me from my country and my friends to a new world of adventure and peril are known from that self-imposed exile i came back as i had hoped prayed believed i should come back a changed man in the waters of a new life i had tempered my nature afresh in the stern school of extremity and danger my will had learnt to be strong my heart to be resolute my mind to rely on itself i had gone out to fly from my own future i came back to face it as a man should to face it with that inevitable suppression of myself which i knew it would demand from me i had parted with the worst bitterness of the past but not with my heart's remembrance of the sorrow and the tenderness of that memorable time i had not ceased to feel the one irreparable disappointment of my life i had only learnt to bear it laura fairly was in all my thoughts when the ship bore me away and i looked my last at england laura fairly was in all my thoughts when the ship brought me back and the morning light showed the friendly shore in view my pen traces the old letters as my heart goes back to the old love i write of her as laura fairly still it is hard to think of her it is hard to speak of her by her husband's name there are no more words of explanation to add on my appearance for the second time in these pages this narrative if i have the strength and the courage to write it may now go on my first anxieties and first hopes when the morning came centred in my mother and my sister i felt the necessity of preparing them for the joy and surprise of my return after an absence during which it had been impossible for them to receive any tidings of me for months past early in the morning i sent a letter to the hampstead cottage and followed it myself in an hour's time when the first meeting was over when our quiet and composure of other days began gradually to return to us i saw something in my mother's face which told me that a secret oppression lay heavy on her heart there was more than love there was sorrow in the anxious eyes that looked on me so tenderly there was pity in the kind hand that slowly and fondly strengthened its hold on mine we had no concealments from each other she knew how the hope of my life had been wrecked she knew why i had left her it was on my lips to ask as composedly as i could if any letter had come for me from miss halcombe if there was any news of her sister that i might hear but when i looked on my mother's face i lost courage to put the question even in that guarded form i could only say doubtingly and restrainedly you have something to tell me my sister who had been sitting opposite to us rose suddenly without a word of explanation rose and left the room my mother moved closer to me on the sofa and put her arms round my neck those fond arms trembled the tears flowed fast 
over the faithful loving face. Walter, she whispered, my own darling, my heart is heavy for you. Oh, my son, my son, try to remember that I am still left. My head sank on her bosom. She had said all in saying those words. It was the morning of the third day since my return, the morning of the 16th of October. I had remained with them at the cottage. I had tried hard not to embitter the happiness of my return to them, as it was embittered to me. I had done all man could to rise after the shock, and accept my life resignedly, to let my great sorrow come in tenderness to my heart, and not in despair. It was useless and hopeless. No tears soothed my aching eyes. No relief came to me from my sister's sympathy or my mother's love. On that third morning I opened my heart to them. At last the words passed my lips, which I had longed to speak on the day when my mother told me of her death. Let me go away alone for a little while, I said. I shall bear it better when I have looked once more at the place where I first saw her, when I have knelt and prayed by the grave where they have laid her to rest. I departed on my journey, my journey to the grave of Laura Fairley. It was a quiet autumn afternoon when I stopped at the solitary station and set forth alone on foot by the well-remembered road. The waning sun was shining faintly through thin white clouds. The air was warm and still. The peacefulness of the lonely country was overshadowed and saddened by the influence of the falling year. I reached the moor. I stood again on the brow of the hill. I looked on along the path, and there were the familiar garden trees in the distance, the clear sweeping semicircle of the drive, the high white walls of Limeridge House, the chances and changes, the wanderings and dangers of months and months past, all shrank and shriveled to nothing in my mind. It was like yesterday since my feet had last trodden the fragrant heathy ground. I thought I should see her coming to meet me, with a little straw hat shading her face, her simple dress fluttering in the air, and her well-filled sketch-book ready in her hand. Oh, dirt thou hast thy sting! Oh, grave thou hast thy victory! I turned aside, and there below me in the glen was the lonesome grey church, the porch where I had waited for the coming of the woman in white, the hills encircling the quiet burial ground, the brook bubbling cold over its stony bed. There was the marble cross, fair and white, at the head of the tomb, the tomb that now rose over mother and daughter alike, I approached the grave. I crossed once more the low stone stile, and bared my head as I touched the sacred ground, sacred to gentleness and goodness, sacred to reverence and grief. I stopped before the pedestal from which the cross rose. On one side of it, on the side nearest to me, 
the newly cut inscription met my eyes the hard clear cruel black letters which told the story of her life and death i tried to read them i did read as far as the name sacred to the memory of laura the kind blue eyes dim with tears the fair head drooping wearily the innocent parting words which implored me to leave her oh for a happier last memory of her than this the memory i took away with me the memory i bring back with me to her grave a second time i tried to read the inscription i saw at the end the date of her death and above it above it there were lines on the marble there was a name among them which disturbed my thoughts of her i went round to the other side of the grave where there was nothing to read nothing of earthly vileness to force its way between her spirit and mine i knelt down by the tomb i laid my hands i laid my head on the broad white stone and closed my weary eyes on the earth around on the light above i let her come back to me oh my love my love my heart may speak to you now it is yesterday again since we parted yesterday since your dear hand lay in mine yesterday since my eyes looked their last on you my love my love time had flowed on and silence had fallen like thick night over its course the first sound that came after the heavenly peace rustled faintly like a passing breath of air over the grass of the burial ground i heard it nearing me slowly until it came changed to my ear came like footsteps moving onward then stopped i looked up the sunset was near at hand the clouds had parted the slanting light fell mellow over the hills the last of the day was cold and clear and still in the quiet valley of the dead beyond me in the burial ground standing together in the cold clearness of the lower light i saw two women they were looking towards the tomb looking towards me two they came a little on and stopped again their veils were down and hid their faces from me when they stopped one of them raised her veil in the still evening light i saw the face of marion halcombe changed changed as if years had passed over it the eyes large and wild and looking at me with a strange terror in them the face worn and wasted piteously pain and fear and grief written on her as with a brand i took one step towards her from the grave she never moved she never spoke the veiled woman with her cried out faintly i stopped the springs of my life fell low and the shuddering of an unutterable dread crept over me from head to foot the woman with the veiled face moved away from her companion and came towards me slowly left by herself standing by herself marion halcombe spoke it was the voice that i remembered the voice not changed like the frightened eyes 
on the wasted face my dream my dream i heard her say those words softly in the awful silence she sank on her knees and raised her clasped hands to heaven father strengthen him father help him in his hour of need the woman came on slowly and silently came on i looked at her at her and at none other from that moment the voice that was praying for me faltered and sank low then rose on a sudden and called affrightedly called despairingly to me to come away but the veiled woman had possession of me body and soul she stopped on one side of the grave we stood face to face with the tombstone between us she was close to the inscription on the side of the pedestal her gown touched the black letters the voice came nearer and rose and rose more passionately still hide your face don't look at her oh for god's sake spare him the woman lifted her veil sacred to the memory of laura lady glide laura lady glide was standing by the inscription and was looking at me over the grave the second epoch of the story closes here end of chapter 24chapter twenty five of the woman in white by wilkie collins this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by tony addison the third epoch the story continued by walter hartwright one i open a new page i advance my narrative by one week the history of the interval which i thus passed over must remain unrecorded my heart turns faint my mind sinks in darkness and confusion when i think of it this must not be if i who write and to guide as i ought you who read this must not be if the clue that leads through the windings of the story is to remain from end to end untangled in my hands a life suddenly changed its whole purpose created afresh its hopes and fears its struggles its interests and its sacrifices all turned at once and for ever into a new direction this is the prospect which now opens before me like the burst of view from a mountain's top i left my narrative in the quiet shadow of limeridge church I resume it one week later, in the stir and turmoil of a London street. The street is in a populous and a poor neighbourhood. The ground floor of one of the houses in it is occupied by a small newsvendor's shop, and the first floor and the second are let as furnished lodgings of the humblest kind. I have taken those two floors in an assumed name. On the upper floor I live, with a room to work in, a room to sleep in. On the lower floor, under the same assumed name, two women live, who are described as my sisters. I get my bread by drawing 
and engraving on wood for the cheap periodicals my sisters are supposed to help me by taking in a little needlework our poor place of abode our humble calling our assumed relationship and our assumed name are all used alike as a means of hiding us in the house forest of london we are numbered no longer with the people whose lives are open and known i am an obscure unnoticed man without patron or friend to help me marion halcombe is nothing now but my eldest sister who provides for our household wants by the toil of her own hands we too in the estimation of others are at once the dupes and the agents of a daring imposture we are supposed to be the accomplices of mad anne catherick who claims the name the place and the living personality of dead lady glyde that is our situation that is the changed aspect in which we three must appear henceforth in this narrative for many and many a page to come in the eye of reason and of law in the estimation of relatives and friends according to every received formality of civilized society laura lady glyde lay buried with her mother in limeridge churchyard torn in her own lifetime from the list of the living the daughter of philip fairley and the wife of percival glyde might still exist for her sister might still exist for me but to all the world besides she was dead dead to her uncle who had renounced her dead to the servants of the house who had failed to recognize her dead to the persons in authority who had transmitted her fortune to her husband and her aunt dead to my mother and my sister who believed me to be the dupe of an adventuress and the victim of a fraud socially morally legally dead and yet alive alive in poverty and in hiding alive with the poor drawing-master to fight her battle and to win the way back for her to her place in the world of living beings did no suspicion excited by my own knowledge of anne catherick's resemblance to her cross my mind when her face was first revealed to me not the shadow of a suspicion from the moment when she lifted her veil by the side of the inscription which recorded her death before the sun of that day had set before the last glimpse of the home which was closed against her had passed from our view the farewell words i spoke when we parted at limeridge house had been recalled by both of us repeated by me recognized by her if ever the time comes when the devotion of my whole heart and soul and strength will give you a moment's happiness or spare you a moment's sorrow will you try to remember the poor drawing-master who has taught you she who now remembered so little of the trouble and terror of a later time remembered those words and laid her poor head innocently and trustingly 
on the bosom of the man who had spoken them in that moment when she called me by my name when she said they have tried to make me forget everything walter but i remember marion and i remember you in that moment i who had long since given her my love gave her my life and thanked god that it was mine to bestow on her yes the time had come from thousands on thousands of miles away through forest and wilderness where companions stronger than i had fallen by my side through peril of death thrice renewed and thrice escaped the hand that leads men on the dark road to the future had led me to meet that time forlorn and disowned sorely tried and sadly changed her beauty faded her mind clouded robbed of her station in the world of her place among living creatures the devotion i had promised the devotion of my whole heart and soul and strength might be laid blamelessly now at those dear feet in the right of her calamity in the right of her friendlessness she was mine at last mine to support to protect to cherish to restore mine to love and honour as father and brother both mine to vindicate through all risks and all sacrifices through the hopeless struggle against rank and power through the long fight with armed deceit and fortified success through the waste of my reputation through the loss of my friends through the hazard of my life two my position is defined my motives are acknowledged the story of marion and the story of laura must come next i shall relate both narratives not in the words often interrupted often inevitably confused of the speakers themselves but in the words of the brief plain studiously simple abstract which I committed to writing for my own guidance, and for the guidance of my legal adviser. So the tangled web will be most speedily and most intelligibly unrolled. The story of Marion begins where the narrative of the housekeeper at Blackwater Park left off. On Lady Glyde's departure from her husband's house, the fact of that departure and the necessary statement of the circumstances under which it had taken place were communicated to miss harkham by the housekeeper it was not till some days afterwards how many days exactly mrs mitchelson in the absence of any written memorandum on the subject could not undertake to say that a letter arrived from madame fosco announcing lady glyde's sudden death in count fosco's house the letter avoided mentioning dates and left it to mrs mitchelson's discretion to break the news at once to miss harcombe or to defer doing so until that lady's health should be more firmly established having consulted mr dawson who had been himself delayed by ill-health in resuming his attendance at blackwater park mrs mitchelson by the doctor's advice and in the doctor's presence communicated the news either on the day when the letter was received or on the day after it is not necessary to dwell here upon the effect which the intelligence of lady glyde's sudden death produced on her sister it is only useful to the present purpose 
to say that she was not able to travel for more than three weeks afterwards. At the end of that time, she proceeded to London, accompanied by the housekeeper. They parted there, Mrs. Mitchelson previously informing Miss Halcombe of her address, in case they might wish to communicate at a future period. On parting with the housekeeper, Miss Halcombe went at once to the office of Messrs. Gilmore and Curl, to consult with the latter gentleman in Mr. Gilmore's absence. She mentioned to Mr. Curl what she had thought it desirable to conceal from everyone else, Mrs. Mitchelson included. Her suspicion of the circumstances under which Lady Glyde was said to have met her death. Mr. Curl, who had previously given friendly proof of his anxiety to serve Miss Halcombe, at once undertook to make such inquiries as the delicate and dangerous nature of the investigation proposed to him would permit. To exhaust this part of the subject before going farther, it may be mentioned that Count Fosco offered every facility to Mr. Curl, on that gentleman stating that he was sent by Miss Halcombe to collect such particulars as had not yet reached her of Lady Glyde's decease. Mr. Curl was placed in communication with the medical man, Mr. Goodrick, and with the two servants. In the absence of any means of ascertaining the exact date of Lady Glyde's departure from Blackwater Park, the result of the doctor's and the servant's evidence, and of the volunteered statements of Count Fosco and his wife, was conclusive to the mind of Mr. Curl. He could only assume that the intensity of Miss Halcombe's suffering under the loss of her sister had misled her judgment in a most deplorable manner, and he wrote her word that the shocking suspicion to which she had alluded in his presence was, in his opinion, destitute of the smallest fragment of foundation in truth. Thus the investigation by Mr. Gilmore's partner began and ended. Meanwhile, Miss Halcombe had returned to Limeridge House, and had there collected all the additional information which she was able to obtain. Mr. Fairley had received his first intimation of his niece's death from his sister, Madame Fosco. This letter also, not containing any exact reference to dates. He had sanctioned his sister's proposal that the deceased lady should be laid in her mother's grave in Limeridge churchyard. Count Fosco had accompanied the remains to Cumberland, and had attended the funeral at Limeridge, which took place on the 30th of July. It was followed as a mark of respect by all the inhabitants of the village and the neighbourhood. On the next day, the inscription, originally drawn out, it was said, by the aunt of the deceased lady, and submitted for approval to her brother, Mr. Fairley, was engraved on one side of the monument over the tomb. On the day of the funeral, and for one day after it, Count Fosco had been received as a guest at Limeridge House, but no interview had taken place between Mr. Fairley and himself by the former gentleman's desire. They had communicated by writing, and through this medium,
Count Fosco had made Mr. Fairley acquainted with the details of his niece's last illness and death. The letter presenting this information added no new facts to the facts already known, but one very remarkable paragraph was contained in the postscript. It referred to Anne Catherick. The substance of the paragraph in question was as follows. It first informed Mr. Fairley that Anne Catherick, of whom he might hear full particulars from Miss Halcombe when she reached Limeridge, had been traced and recovered in the neighbourhood of Blackwater Park, and had been for the second time placed under the charge of the medical man from whose custody she had once escaped. This was the first part of the postscript. The second part warned Mr. Fairley that Anne Catherick's mental malady had been aggravated by her long freedom from control, and that the insane hatred and distrust of Sir Percival Glyde, which had been one of her most marked delusions in former times, still existed under a newly acquired form. The unfortunate woman's last idea, in connection with Sir Percival, was the idea of annoying and distressing him, and of elevating herself, as she supposed, in the estimation of the patients and nurses, by assuming the character of his deceased wife, the scheme of this personation having evidently occurred to her, after a stolen interview which she had succeeded in obtaining with Lady Clyde, and at which she had observed the extraordinary accidental likeness between the deceased lady and herself. It was to the last degree improbable that she would succeed a second time in escaping from the asylum, but it was just possible she might find some means of annoying the late Lady Glyde's relatives with letters, and, in that case, Mr. Fairley was warned beforehand how to receive them. The postscript expressed in these terms was shown to Miss Halcombe when she arrived at Limeridge. There were also placed in her possession the clothes Lady Glyde had worn, and the other effects she had brought with her to her aunt's house. They had been carefully collected and sent to Cumberland by Madame Fosco. Such was the posture of affairs when Miss Halcombe reached Limeridge in the early part of September. Shortly afterwards she was confined to her room by a relapse, her weakened physical energies giving way under the severe mental affliction from which she was now suffering. On getting stronger again in a month's time, her suspicion of the circumstances described as attending her sister's death still remained unshaken. She had heard nothing in the interim of Sir Percival Glyde but letters had reached her from Madame Fosco, making the most affectionate inquiries on the part of her husband and herself. Instead of answering these letters, Miss Halcombe caused the house in St. John's Wood, and the proceedings of its inmates, to be privately watched. Nothing doubtful was discovered. The same result attended the next investigations, which were secretly instituted on the subject of Mrs. Rubell. She had arrived in London about six months before with her husband. They had come from Lyon, 
and they had taken a house in the neighbourhood of Leicester Square, to be fitted up as a boarding-house for foreigners, who were expected to visit England in large numbers to see the exhibition of 1851. Nothing was known against husband or wife in the neighbourhood. They were quiet people, and they had paid their way honestly up to the present time. The final inquiries related to Sir Percival Glyde. He was settled in Paris, and living there quietly, in a small circle of English and French friends. Foiled at all points, but still not able to rest, Miss Harcombe next determined to visit the asylum in which she then supposed Anne Catherick to be for the second time confined. She had felt a strong curiosity about the woman in former days, and she was now doubly interested. First, in ascertaining whether the report of Anne Catherick's attempted personation of Lady Glyde was true, and, secondly, if it proved to be true, in discovering for herself what the poor creature's real motives were for attempting the deceit. Although Count Fosco's letter to Mr. Fairley did not mention the address of the asylum, that important omission cast no difficulties in Miss Halcombe's way. When Mr. Hartwright had met Anne Catherick at Limeridge, she had informed him of the locality in which the house was situated, and Miss Halcombe had noted down the direction in her diary, with all the other particulars of the interview, exactly as she had heard them from Mr. Hartwright's own lips. Accordingly, she looked back at the entry, and extracted the address, furnished herself with the Count's letter to Mr. Fairley as a species of credential which might be useful to her, and started by herself for the asylum on the 11th of October. She passed the night of the 11th in London. It had been her intention to sleep at the house inhabited by Lady Glyde's old governess, but Mrs. Vase's agitation at the sight of her lost pupil's nearest and dearest friend was so distressing that Miss Halcombe considerately refrained from remaining in her presence and removed to a respectable boarding-house in the neighbourhood, recommended by Mrs. Vase's married sister. The next day she proceeded to the asylum, which was situated not far from London, on the northern side of the metropolis. She was immediately admitted to see the proprietor. At first he appeared to be decidedly unwilling to let her communicate with his patient, but on her showing him the postscript to Count Fosco's letter, on her reminding him that she was the Miss Halcombe there referred to, that she was a near relative of the deceased Lady Glyde, and that she was therefore naturally interested, for family reasons, in observing for herself the extent of Anne Catherick's delusion in relation to her late sister. The tone and manner of the owner of the asylum altered, and he withdrew his objections. He probably felt that a continued refusal under these circumstances would not only be an act of discourtesy in itself, but would also imply that the proceedings in his establishment were not of a nature to bear investigation by respectable strangers. Miss Halcombe's own impression was that the owner of the asylum 
had not been received into the confidence of Sir Percival and the Count. His consenting at all to let her visit his patient seemed to afford one proof of this, and his readiness in making admissions which could scarcely have escaped the lips of an accomplice certainly appeared to furnish another. For example, in the course of the introductory conversation which took place, he informed Miss Harkham that Anne Catterick had been brought back to him with the necessary order and certificates by Count Fosco on the 27th of July, the Count also producing a letter of explanations and instructions signed by Sir Percival Glyde. On receiving his inmate again, the proprietor of the asylum acknowledged that he had observed some curious personal changes in her. Such changes, no doubt, were not without precedent in his experience of persons mentally afflicted. Insane people were often at one time, outwardly as well as inwardly, unlike what they were at another. The change from better to worse, or from worse to better, in the madness having a necessary tendency to produce alterations of appearance externally. He allowed for these, and he allowed also for the modification in the form of Anne Catherick's delusion, which was reflected, no doubt, in her manner and expression, but he was still perplexed at times by certain differences between his patient before she had escaped, and his patient since she had been brought back. Those differences were too minute to be described. He could not say, of course, that she was absolutely altered in height or shape or complexion, or in the colour of her hair and eyes, or in the general form of her face. The change was something that he felt, more than something that he saw. In short, the case had been a puzzle from the first, and one more perplexity was added to it now. It cannot be said that this conversation led to the result of even partially preparing Miss Halcombe's mind for what was to come, but it produced nevertheless a very serious effect upon her. She was so completely unnerved by it that some little time elapsed before she could summon composure enough to follow the proprietor of the asylum to that part of the house in which the inmates were confined. On inquiry, it turned out that the supposed Anne Catherick was then taking exercise in the grounds attached to the establishment. One of the nurses volunteered to conduct Miss Halcombe to the place, the proprietor of the asylum remaining in the house for a few minutes to attend to a case which required his services, and then engaging to join his visitor in the grounds. The nurse led Miss Halcombe to a distant part of the property, which was prettily laid out, and after looking about her a little, turned into a turf walk, shaded by a shrubbery on either side. About halfway down this walk, two women were slowly approaching. The nurse pointed to them and said, "'There is Anne Catherick, ma'am, with the attendant who waits on her. The attendant will answer any questions you wish to put.' With those words, the nurse left her to return to the duties of the house. Miss Halcombe advanced on her side, and the women advanced on theirs. When they were within a dozen paces of each other, one of the women stopped for an instant, looked eagerly at the strange lady, shook off the nurse's grasp on her, 
and the next moment rushed into Miss Halcombe's arms. In that moment, Miss Halcombe recognised her sister, recognised the dead alive. Fortunately for the success of the measures taken subsequently, no one was present at that moment but the nurse. She was a young woman, and she was so startled that she was at first quite incapable of interfering. When she was able to do so, her whole services were required by Miss Halcombe, who had, for the moment, sunk altogether in the effort to keep her own senses under the shock of the discovery. After waiting a few minutes in the fresh air and the cool shade, her natural energy and courage helped her a little, and she became sufficiently mistress of herself to feel the necessity of recalling her presence of mind for her unfortunate sister's sake. She obtained permission to speak alone with the patient, on condition that they both remained well within the nurse's view. There was no time for questions. There was only time for Miss Halcombe to impress on the unhappy lady the necessity of controlling herself, and to assure her of immediate help and rescue if she did so. The prospect of escaping from the asylum by obedience to her sister's directions was sufficient to quiet Lady Glyde, and to make her understand what was required of her. Miss Halcombe next returned to the nurse, placed all the gold she then had in her pocket, three sovereigns, in the nurse's hands, and asked when and where she could speak to her alone. The woman was at first surprised and distrustful, but on Miss Halcombe's declaring that she only wanted to put some questions which she was too much agitated to ask at that moment, and that she had no intention of misleading the nurse into any dereliction of duty, the woman took the money, and proposed three o'clock on the next day as the time for the interview. She might then step out for half an hour, after the patients had dined, and she would meet the lady in a retired place, outside the high north wall, which screened the grounds of the house. Miss Halcombe had only time to assent, and to whisper to her sister that she should hear from her on the next day, when the proprietor of the asylum joined them. He noticed his visitor's agitation, which Miss Halcombe accounted for, by saying that her interview with Anne Catterick had a little startled her at first. She took her leave as soon after as possible, that is to say, as soon as she could summon courage to force herself from the presence of her unfortunate sister. A very little reflection, when the capacity to reflect returned, convinced her that any attempt to identify Lady Glyde, and to rescue her by legal means, would, even if successful, involve a delay that might be fatal to her sister's intellects, which was shaken already by the horror of the situation to which she had been consigned. By the time Miss Halcombe had got back to London, she had determined to effect Lady Glyde's escape privately, by means of the nurse. She went at once to her stockbroker, and sold out of the funds all the little property she possessed, amounting to rather less than seven hundred pounds. Determined, if necessary, to pay the price of her sister's liberty with every farthing she had in the world, she repaired the next day, having the whole sum about her in banknotes, to her appointment outside the asylum wall. The nurse was there. 
miss halcombe approached the subject cautiously by many preliminary questions she discovered among other particulars that the nurse who had in former times attended on the true anne catherick had been held responsible although she was not to blame for it for the patient's escape and had lost her place in consequence the same penalty it was added would attach to the person then speaking to her if the supposed anne catherick was missing a second time and moreover the nurse in this case had an especial interest in keeping her place she was engaged to be married and she and her future husband were waiting till they could save together between two and three hundred pounds to start in business the nurse's wages were good and she might succeed by strict economy in contributing her small share towards the sum required in two years time on this hint miss halcombe spoke she declared that the supposed anne catherick was nearly related to her that she had been placed in the asylum under a fatal mistake and that the nurse would be doing a good and a christian action in being the means of restoring them to one another before there was time to start a single objection miss halcombe took four banknotes of a hundred pounds each from her pocket-book and offered them to the woman as a compensation for the risk she was to run and for the loss of her place the nurse hesitated through sheer incredulity and surprise miss halcombe pressed the point on her firmly you will be doing a good action she repeated you will be helping the most injured and unhappy woman alive there is your marriage portion for a reward bring her safely to me here and i will put these four banknotes into your hand before i claim her will you give me a letter saying those words which i can show to my sweetheart when he asks how i got the money inquired the woman i will bring the letter with me ready written and signed answered miss halcombe then i'll risk it said the nurse when to-morrow it was hastily agreed between them that miss halcombe should return early the next morning and wait out of sight among the trees always however keeping near the quiet spot of ground under the north wall the nurse could fix no time for her appearance caution requiring that she should wait and be guided by circumstances on that understanding they separated miss halcombe was at her place with the promised letter and the promised banknotes before ten the next morning she waited more than an hour and a half at the end of that time the nurse came quickly round the corner of the wall holding lady glyde by the arm the moment they met miss halcombe put the banknotes and the letter into her hand and the sisters were united again the nurse had dressed lady glyde with excellent forethought in a bonnet veil and shawl of her own miss halcombe only detained her to suggest a means of turning the pursuit in a false direction when the escape was discovered at the asylum she was to go back to the house to mention in the hearing of the other nurses that anne catherick had been inquiring latterly about the distance from london to hampshire to wait till the last moment before discovery was inevitable and then to give the alarm that anne was missing the supposed inquiries about hampshire when communicated to the owner of the asylum 
would lead him to imagine that his patient had returned to Blackwater Park, under the influence of the delusion which made her persist in asserting herself to be Lady Glyde, and the first pursuit would, in all probability, be turned in that direction. The nurse consented to follow these suggestions, the more readily as they offered her the means of securing herself against any worse consequences than the loss of her place, by remaining in the asylum, and so maintaining the appearance of innocence at least. She at once returned to the house, and Miss Halcombe lost no time in taking her sister back with her to London. They caught the afternoon train to Carlisle the same afternoon, and arrived at Limeridge, without accident or difficulty of any kind that night. During the latter part of their journey, they were alone in the carriage, and Miss Halcombe was able to collect such remembrances of the past as her sister's confused and weakened memory was able to recall. The terrible story of the conspiracy so obtained was presented in fragments sadly incoherent in themselves and widely detached from each other. Imperfect as the revelation was, it must nevertheless be recorded here, before this explanatory narrative closes with the events of the next day at Limeridge House. Lady Glyde's recollection of the events which followed her departure from Blackwater Park began with her arrival at the London terminus of the South Western Railway. She had omitted to make a memorandum beforehand of the day on which she took the journey. All hope of fixing that important date by any evidence of hers or of Mrs. Mitchelson's must be given up for lost. On the arrival of the train at the platform, Lady Glyde found Count Fosco waiting for her. He was at the carriage door as soon as the porter could open it. The train was unusually crowded, and there was great confusion in getting the luggage. Some person whom Count Fosco brought with him procured the luggage which belonged to Lady Glyde. It was marked with her name. She drove away alone with the Count, in a vehicle which she did not particularly notice at the time. Her first question, on leaving the terminus, referred to Miss Halcombe. The Count informed her that Miss Halcombe had not yet gone to Cumberland, after consideration having caused him to doubt the prudence of her taking so long a journey without some day's previous rest. Lady Glyde next inquired whether her sister was then staying in the Count's house. Her recollection of the answer was confused, her only distinct impression in relation to it being that the Count declared he was then taking her to see Miss Halcombe. Lady Glyde's experience of London was so limited that she could not tell at the time through what streets they were driving but they never left the streets, and they never passed any gardens or trees. When the carriage stopped, it stopped in a small street behind a square, a square in which there were shops, and public buildings, and many people. From these recollections, of which Lady Glyde was certain, it seems quite clear that Count Fosco did not take her to his own residence, 
in the suburb of St. John's Wood. They entered the house, and went upstairs to a back room, either on the first or second floor. The luggage was carefully brought in. A female servant opened the door, and a man with a dark beard, apparently a foreigner, met them in the hall, and with great politeness showed them the way upstairs. In answer to Lady Glyde's inquiries, the Count assured her that Miss Halcombe was in the house, and that she should be immediately informed of her sister's arrival. He and the foreigner then went away, and left her by herself in the room. It was poorly furnished as a sitting-room, and it looked out on the backs of houses. The place was remarkably quiet. No footsteps went up or down the stairs. She only heard in the room beneath her a dull rumbling sound of men's voices talking. Before she had been long left alone, the Count returned, to explain that Miss Halcombe was then taking rest, and could not be disturbed for a little while. He was accompanied into the room by a gentleman, an Englishman, whom he begged to present as a friend of his. After this singular introduction, in the course of which no names, to the best of Lady Glyde's recollection, had been mentioned, she was left alone with the stranger. He was perfectly civil, but he startled and confused her by some odd questions about herself, and by looking at her while he asked them in a strange manner. After remaining a short time he went out, and a minute or two afterwards a second stranger, also an Englishman, came in. This person introduced himself as another friend of Count Fosco's, and he, in his turn, looked at her very oddly and asked some curious questions, never, as well as she could remember, addressing her by name, and going out again, after a little while, like the first man. By this time she was so frightened about herself, and so uneasy about her sister, that she had thoughts of venturing downstairs again, and claiming the protection and assistance of the only woman she had seen in the house, the servant who answered the door. Just as she had risen from her chair, the Count came back into the room. The moment he appeared, she asked anxiously how long the meeting between her sister and herself was to be still delayed. At first he returned an evasive answer, but on being pressed, he acknowledged with great apparent reluctance that Miss Holcombe was by no means so well as he had hitherto represented her to be. His tone and manner in making this reply, so alarmed Lady Glyde, or rather so painfully increased the uneasiness which she had felt in the company of the two strangers, that a sudden faintness overcame her, and she was obliged to ask for a glass of water. The Count called from the door for water, and for a bottle of smelling salts. Both were brought in by the foreign-looking man with the beard. The water, when Lady Glyde attempted to drink it, had so strange a taste that it increased her faintness, and she hastily took the bottle of salts from Count Fosco and smelt at it. Her head became giddy on the instant. The Count caught the bottle as it dropped out of her hand, and the last impression of which she was conscious was that he held it to her nostrils again. 
From this point her recollections were found to be confused, fragmentary, and difficult to reconcile with any reasonable probability. Her own impression was that she recovered her senses later in the evening, that she then left the house, that she went, as she had previously arranged to go at Blackwater Park, to Mrs. Vase's, that she drank tea there, and that she passed the night under Mrs. Vase's roof. She was totally unable to say how, or when, or in what company she left the house to which Count Fosco had brought her. But she persisted in asserting that she had been to Mrs. Vase's, and, still more extraordinary, that she had been helped to undress and get to bed by Mrs. Rubell. She could not remember what the conversation was at Mrs. Vase's, or whom she saw there besides that lady, or why Mrs. Rubell should have been present in the house to help her. Her recollection of what happened to her the next morning was still more vague and unreliable. She had some dim idea of driving out, at what hour she could not say, with Count Fosco, and with Mrs. Rubell again, for a female attendant. But when and why she left Mrs. Vasey she could not tell. Neither did she know what direction the carriage drove him, or where it set her down, or whether the Count and Mrs. Rubell did or did not remain with her all the time she was out. At this point in her sad story there was a total blank. She had no impressions of the faintest kind to communicate, no idea whether one day or more than one day had passed, until she came to herself suddenly in a strange place, surrounded by women who were all unknown to her. This was the asylum. Here she first heard herself called by Anne Catherick's name, and here, as a last remarkable circumstance in the story of the conspiracy, her own eyes informed her that she had Anne Catherick's clothes on. The nurse, on the first night in the asylum, had shown her the marks on each article of her underclothing as it was taken off, and had said, not at all irritably or unkindly, "'Look at your own name on your own clothes, and don't worry us all any more about being Lady Glyde. She's dead and buried, and you're alive and hearty. Do look at your clothes now. There it is in good marking ink, and there you will find it on all your old things, which we have kept in the house. And Catherick as plain as print.' And there it was, when Miss Halcombe examined the linen her sister wore on the night of their arrival at Limeridge House. These were the only recollections, all of them uncertain and some of them contradictory, which could be extracted from Lady Glyde by careful questioning on the journey to Cumberland. Miss Halcombe abstained from pressing her with any inquiries relating to events in the asylum, her mind being but too evidently unfit to bear the trial of reverting to them. It was known, by the voluntary admission of the owner of the madhouse, that she was received there on the 27th of July. From that date until the 15th of October, the day of her rescue, she had been under restraint, her identity with Anne Catherick systematically asserted, and her sanity from first to last practically denied. Faculties less delicately balanced, constitutions less tenderly organized, must have suffered under such an ordeal as this.
no man could have gone through it and come out of it unchanged. Arriving at Limeridge late on the evening of the 15th, Miss Halcombe wisely resolved not to attempt the assertion of Lady Glyde's identity until the next day. The first thing in the morning she went to Mr. Fairley's room, and using all possible cautions and preparations beforehand, at last told him in so many words what had happened. As soon as his first astonishment and alarm had subsided, he angrily declared that Miss Halcombe had allowed herself to be duped by Anne Catherick. He referred her to Count Fosco's letter, and to what she had herself told him of the personal resemblance between Anne and his deceased niece, and he positively declined to admit to his presence, even for one minute only, a mad woman whom it was an insult and an outrage to have brought into his house at all. Miss Halcombe left the room, waited till the first heat of her indignation had passed away, decided on reflection that Mr. Fairley should see his niece in the interests of common humanity before he closed his doors on her as a stranger, and thereupon, without a word of previous warning, took Lady Glyde with her to his room. The servant was posted at the door to prevent their entrance, but Miss Halcombe insisted on passing him, and made her way into Mr. Fairley's presence, leading her sister by the hand. The scene that followed, though it only lasted for a few minutes, was too painful to be described. Miss Halcombe herself shrank from referring to it. Let it be enough to say that Mr. Fairley declared in the most positive terms that he did not recognise the woman who had been brought into his room, that he saw nothing in her face and manner to make him doubt for a moment that his niece they buried in Limeridge churchyard, and that he would call on the law to protect him if before the day was over she was not removed from the house. Taking the very worst view of Mr. Fairley's selfishness, indolence, and habitual want of feeling, it was manifestly impossible to suppose that he was capable of such infamy as secretly recognising and openly disowning his brother's child. Miss Halcombe humanely and sensibly allowed all due force to the influence of prejudice and alarm in preventing him from fairly exercising his perceptions, and accounted for what had happened in that way. But when she next put the servants to the test, and found that they too were in every case uncertain, to say the least of it, whether the lady presented to them was their young mistress or Anne Catherick, of whose resemblance to her they had all heard, the sad conclusion was inevitable that the change produced in Lady Glyde's face and manner by her imprisonment in the asylum, was far more serious than Miss Halcombe had at first supposed. The vile deception which had asserted her death defied exposure even in the house where she was born, and among the people with whom she had lived. In a less critical situation, the effort need not have been given up as hopeless even yet. For example, the maid, Fanny, who happened to be then absent from Limeridge, was expected back in two days, and there would be a chance of gaining her recognition to start with, seeing that she had been in much more constant communication with her mistress, and had been much more heartily attached to her than the other servants. 
again lady glyde might have been privately kept in the house or in the village to wait until her health was a little recovered and her mind was a little steadied again when her memory could be once more trusted to serve her she would naturally refer to persons and events in the past with a certainty and a familiarity which no impostor could simulate and so the fact of her identity which her own appearance had failed to establish might subsequently be proved with time to help her by the surer test of her own words but the circumstances under which she had regained her freedom rendered all recourse to such means as these simply impracticable the pursuit from the asylum diverted to hampshire for the time only would infallibly next take the direction of cumberland the persons appointed to seek the fugitive might arrive at limeridge house at a few hours notice and in mr fairley's present temper of mind they might count on the immediate exertion of his local influence and authority to assist them the commonest consideration for lady glyde's safety forced on miss harkham the necessity of resigning the struggle to do her justice and of removing her at once from the place of all others that was now most dangerous to her the neighbourhood of her own home an immediate return to london was the first and wisest measure of security which suggested itself in the great city all traces of them might be most speedily and most surely effaced there were no preparations to make no farewell words of kindness to exchange with any one on the afternoon of that memorable day of the sixteenth miss halcombe roused her sister to a last exertion of courage and without a living soul to wish them well at parting the two took their way into the world alone and turned their backs for ever on limeridge house they had passed the hill above the churchyard when lady glyde insisted on turning back to look her last at her mother's grave miss halcombe tried to shake her resolution but in this one instance tried in vain she was immovable her dim eyes lit with a sudden fire and flashed through the veil that hung over them her wasted fingers strengthened moment by moment round the friendly arm by which they had held so listlessly till this time i believe in my soul that the hand of god was pointing their way back to them and that the most innocent and the most afflicted of his creatures was chosen in that dread moment to see it they retraced their steps to the burial ground and by that act sealed the future of our three lives end of chapter twenty five chapter twenty six of the woman in white by wilkie collins this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by tony addison three this was the story of the past the story so far as we knew it then two obvious conclusions presented themselves to my mind after hearing it in the first place i saw darkly what the nature of the conspiracy had been how chances had been watched and how circumstances had been handled to ensure impunity 
to a daring and an intricate crime. While all details were still a mystery to me, the vile manner in which the personal resemblance between the woman in white and Lady Glyde had been turned to account was clear beyond a doubt. It was plain that Anne Catherick had been introduced into Count Fosco's house as Lady Glyde. It was plain that Lady Glyde had taken the dead woman's place in the asylum, the substitution having been so managed as to make innocent people, the doctor and the two servants certainly, and the owner of the madhouse in all probability, accomplices in the crime. The second conclusion came as the necessary consequence of the first. We three had no mercy to expect from Count Fosco and Sir Percival Glyde. The success of the conspiracy had brought with it a clear gain to those two men of thirty thousand pounds, twenty thousand to one, ten thousand to the other through his wife. They had that interest, as well as other interests, in ensuring their impunity from exposure, and they would leave no stone unturned, no sacrifice unattempted, no treachery untried, to discover the place in which their victim was concealed, and to part her from the only friend she had in the world, Marion Halcombe and myself. The sense of this serious peril, a peril which every day and every hour might bring nearer and nearer to us, was the one influence that guided me in fixing the place of our retreat. I chose it in the far east of London, where there were fewest idle people to lounge and look about them in the streets. I chose it in a poor and a populous neighbourhood, because the harder the struggle for existence among the men and women about us, the less the risk of their having the time or taking the pains to notice chance strangers who came among them. These were the great advantages I looked to, but our locality was a gain to us also, in another and a hardly less important respect. We could live cheaply by the daily work of my hands, and could save every farthing we possessed to forward the purpose, the righteous purpose, of redressing an infamous wrong, which from first to last I now kept steadily in view. In a week's time, Marion Halcombe and I had settled how the course of our new lives should be directed. There were no other lodgers in the house, and we had the means of going in and out without passing through the shop. I arranged, for the present at least, that neither Marion nor Laura should stir outside the door without my being with them, and that in my absence from home they should let no one into their rooms on any pretense whatever. This rule established, I went to a friend whom I had known in former days, a wood-engraver in large practice, to seek for employment, telling him at the same time that I had reasons for wishing to remain unknown. He at once concluded that I was in debt, expressed his regret in the usual forms, 
and then promised to do what he could to assist me. I left his false impression undisturbed, and accepted the work he had to give. He knew that he could trust my experience and my industry. I had what he wanted, steadiness and facility, and though my earnings were but small, they sufficed for our necessities. As soon as we could feel certain of this, Marion Halcombe and I put together what we possessed. She had between two and three hundred pounds left of her own property, and I had nearly as much remaining from the purchase money obtained by the sale of my drawing-master's practice before I left England. Together we made up between us more than four hundred pounds. I deposited this little fortune in a bank to be kept for the expense of those secret inquiries and investigations which I was determined to set on foot, and to carry on by myself, if I could find no one to help me. We calculated our weekly expenditure to the last farthing, and we never touched our little fund, except in Laura's interests, and for Laura's sake. The housework which, if we had dared trust a stranger near us, would have been done by a servant, was taken on the first day, taken as her own right, by Marion Halcombe. "'What a woman's hands are fit for,' she said. "'Early and late, these hands of mine shall do.' They trembled, as she held them out. The wasted arms told their sad story of the past, as she turned up the sleeves of the poor plain dress that she wore for safety's sake but the unquenchable spirit of the woman burnt bright in her even yet. I saw the big tears rise thick in her eyes, and fall slowly over her cheeks as she looked at me. She dashed them away with a touch of her old energy, and smiled with a faint reflection of her old good spirits. "'Don't doubt my courage, Walter,' she pleaded. "'It's my weakness that cries not me. The housework shall conquer it if I can't and she kept her word. The victory was won, when we met in the evening, and she sat down to rest. Her large, steady black eyes looked at me with a flash of their bright firmness of bygone days. I am not quite broken down yet, she said. I am worth trusting with my share of the work. Before I could answer, she added in a whisper, and worth trusting with my share in the risk and the danger, too. Remember that if the time comes. I did remember it when the time came. As early as the end of October, the daily course of our lives had assumed its subtle direction, and we three were as completely isolated in our place of concealment as if the house we lived in had been a desert island and the great network of streets, and the thousands of our fellow-creatures all round us, the waters of an illimitable sea. I could now reckon on some leisure time for considering what my future plan of action should be, and how I might arm myself most securely at the outset for the coming struggle with Sir Percival and the Count. I gave up all hope of appealing to my recognition of Laura, or to Marian's recognition of her, in proof of her identity. If we had loved her less dearly, if the instinct implanted in us by that love 
had not been far more certain than any exercise of reasoning, far keener than any process of observation, even we might have hesitated on first seeing her. The outward changes, wrought by the suffering and the terror of the past, had fearfully, almost hopelessly strengthened the fatal resemblance between Anne Catherick and herself. In my narrative of events at the time of my residence in Limeridge House, I have recorded, from my own observation of the two, how the likeness, striking as it was, when viewed generally, failed in many important points of similarity when tested in detail. In those former days, if they had both been seen together side by side, no person could for a moment have mistaken them one for the other, as has happened often in the instances of twins. I could not say this now. The sorrow and suffering which I had once blamed myself for associating even by a passing thought with the future of Laura Fairley had set their profaning marks on the youth and beauty of her face, and the fatal resemblance which I had once seen and shuddered at seeing in idea only was now a real and living resemblance which asserted itself before my own eyes. Strangers, acquaintances, friends even, who could not look at her as we looked, if she had been shown to them in the first days of her rescue from the asylum, might have doubted if she were the Laura Fairley they had once seen, and doubted without blame. The one remaining chance, which I had at first thought might be trusted to serve us, the chance of appealing to her recollection of persons and events with which no impostor could be familiar, was proved by the sad test of our later experience, to be hopeless. Every little caution that Marian and I practised towards her, every little remedy we tried to strengthen and steady slowly the weakened, shaken faculties, was a fresh protest in itself against the risk of turning her mind back on the troubled and the terrible past. The only events of former days which we ventured on encouraging her to recall with the little trivial domestic events of that happy time at Limeridge, when I first went there and taught her to draw. The day when I roused those remembrances by showing her the sketch of the summer-house which she had given me on the morning of our farewell, and which had never been separated from me since, was the birthday of our first hope. Tenderly and gradually, the memory of the old walks and drives dawned upon her, and the poor weary pining eyes looked at Marian and at me with a new interest, with a faltering thoughtfulness in them, which from that moment we cherished and kept alive. I bought her a little box of colours, and a sketch-book like the old sketch-book which I had seen in her hands on the morning that we first met. Once again, oh me, once again, at spare hours saved from my work, in the dull London light, in the poor London room, I sat by her side, to guide the faltering touch, to help the feeble hand. Day by day, I raised and raised the new interest, till its place in the blank of her existence was at last assured, 
till she could think of her drawing and talk of it and patiently practise it by herself with some faint reflection of the innocent pleasure in my encouragement the growing enjoyment in her own progress which belonged to the lost life and the lost happiness of past days we helped her mind slowly by this simple means we took her out between us to walk on fine days in a quiet old city square near at hand where there was nothing to confuse or alarm her we spared a few pounds from the fund at the bankers to get her wine and the delicate strengthening food that she required we amused her in the evenings with children's games at cards with scrapbooks full of prints which i borrowed from the engraver who employed me by these and other trifling attentions like them we composed her and steadied her and hoped all things as cheerfully as we could from time and care and love that never neglected and never despaired of her but to take her mercilessly from seclusion and repose to confront her with strangers or with acquaintances who were little better than strangers to rouse the painful impressions of our past life which we had so carefully hushed to rest this even in her own interests we dared not do whatever sacrifices it cost whatever long weary heart-breaking delays it involved the wrong that had been inflicted on her if mortal means could grapple it must be redressed without her knowledge and without her help this resolution settled it was next necessary to decide how the first risk should be ventured and what the first proceeding should be after consulting with marian i resolved to begin by gathering together as many facts as could be collected then to ask the advice of mr curl whom we knew we could trust and to ascertain from him in the first instance if the legal remedy lay fairly within our reach i owed it to laura's interests not to stake her whole future on my own unaided exertions so long as there was the faintest prospect of strengthening our position by obtaining reliable assistance of any kind the first source of information to which i applied was the journal kept at blackwater park by marian harkham there were passages in this diary relating to myself which she thought it best that i should not see accordingly she read to me from the manuscript and i took the notes i wanted as she went on we could only find time to pursue this occupation by sitting up late at night three nights were devoted to the purpose and were enough to put me in possession of all that marian could tell my next proceeding was to gain as much additional evidence as i could procure from other people without exciting suspicion i went myself to mrs vesey to ascertain if laura's impression of having slept there was correct or not in this case from consideration for mrs vesey's age and infirmity and in all subsequent cases of the same kind from considerations of caution i kept our real position a secret and was always careful to speak of laura 
as the late Lady Glyde. Mrs. Vase's answer to my inquiries only confirmed the apprehensions which I had previously felt. Laura had certainly written to say she would pass the night under the roof of her old friend, but she had never been near the house. Her mind in this instance, and, as I feared, in other instances besides, confusedly presented to her something which she had only intended to do in the false light of something which she had really done. The unconscious contradiction of herself was easy to account for in this way, but it was likely to lead to serious results. It was a stumble on the threshold at starting. It was a flaw in the evidence which told fatally against us. When I next asked for the letter which Laura had written to Mrs. Vesey from Blackwater Park, it was given to me without the envelope, which had been thrown into the waste-paper basket, and long since destroyed. In the letter itself no date was mentioned, not even the day of the week. It only contained these lines. Dearest Mrs. Vesey, I am in sad distress and anxiety, and I may come to your house to-morrow night, and ask for a bed. I can't tell you what is the matter in this letter. I write it in such fear of being found out, that I can fix my mind on nothing. Pray be at home to see me. I will give you a thousand kisses, and tell you everything. Your affectionate Laura. What help was there in those lines? None. On returning from Mrs. Vase's, I instructed Marion to write, observing the same caution which I practised myself, to Mrs. Mitchelson. She was to express, if she pleased, some general suspicion of Count Fosco's conduct, and she was to ask the housekeeper to supply us with a plain statement of events in the interests of truth. While we were waiting for the answer, which reached us in a week's time, I went to the doctor in St. John's Wood, introducing myself as sent by Miss Halcombe to collect, if possible, more particulars of her sister's last illness than Mr. Curl had found the time to procure. By Mr. Goodrick's assistance, I obtained a copy of the certificate of death, and an interview with the woman, Jane Gould, who had been employed to prepare the body for the grave. Through this person, I also discovered a means of communicating with the servant, Hester Pinhorn. She had recently left her place, in consequence of a disagreement with her mistress, and she was lodging with some people in the neighbourhood, whom Mrs. Gould knew. In the manner here indicated, I obtained the narratives of the housekeeper, of the doctor, of Jane Gould, and of Hester Pinhorn, exactly as they are presented in these pages. Furnished with such additional evidence as these documents afforded, I considered myself to be sufficiently prepared for a consultation with Mr. Curl, and Marian wrote accordingly to mention my name to him, and to specify the day and hour at which I requested to see him on private business. There was time enough in the morning for me to take Laura out for her walk as usual, and to see her quietly settled at her drawing afterwards. She looked up at me with a new anxiety in her face as I rose to leave the room, and her fingers began to toy doubtfully in the old way with the brushes and pencils on the table. You are not tired of me yet, 
she said. You are not going away because you are tired of me. I will try to do better. I will try to get well. Are you as fond of me, Walter, as you used to be, now I am so pale and thin, and so slow in learning to draw? She spoke as a child might have spoken. She showed me her thoughts as a child might have shown them. I waited a few minutes longer, waited to tell her that she was dearer to me now than she had ever been in the past times. Try to get well again, I said, encouraging the new hope in the future which I saw dawning in her mind. Try to get well again for Marian's sake and for mine. Yes, she said to herself, returning to her drawing. I must try, because they are both so fond of me. She suddenly looked up again. Don't be gone long. I can't get on with my drawing, Walter, when you are not here to help me. I shall soon be back, my darling, soon be back to see how you are getting on. My voice faltered a little in spite of me. I forced myself from the room. It was no time, then, for parting with the self-control which might yet serve me in my need before the day was out. As I opened the door, I beckoned to Marion to follow me to the stairs. It was necessary to prepare her for a result, which I felt might sooner or later follow my showing myself openly in the streets. I shall in all probability be back in a few hours, I said, and you will take care, as usual, to let no one inside the doors in my absence. But if anything happens, what can happen? she interposed quickly. Tell me plainly, Walter, if there is any danger, and I shall know how to meet it. The only danger, I replied, is that Sir Percival Glyde may have been recalled to London by the news of Laura's escape. You are aware that he had me watched before I left England, and that he probably knows me by sight, although I don't know him. She laid her hand on my shoulder, and looked at me in anxious silence. I saw she understood the serious risk that threatened us. It is not likely, I said, that I shall be seen in London again so soon, either by Sir Percival himself, or by the persons in his employ. But it is barely possible that an accident may happen. In that case, you will not be alarmed if I fail to return to-night, and you will satisfy any inquiry of Laura's with the best excuse that you can make for me, if I find the least reason to suspect that I am watched, I will take good care that no spy follows me back to this house. Don't doubt my return, Marian, however it may be delayed, and fear nothing. Nothing, she answered firmly. You shall not regret, Walter, that you have only a woman to help you. She paused, and detained me for a moment longer. Take care, she said, pressing my hand anxiously. Take care. I left her, and set forth to pave the way for discovery, the dark and doubtful way which began at the lawyer's door. 4. No circumstance of the slightest importance happened on my way to the offices of Messrs. Gilmore and Curl in Chancery Lane. While my card was being taken in to Mr. Curl, a consideration occurred to me which I deeply regretted not having thought of before. The information derived from Marion's diary made it a matter of certainty 
that Count Fosco had opened her first letter from Blackwater Park to Mr. Curl, and had, by means of his wife, intercepted the second. He was therefore well aware of the address of the office, and he would naturally infer that if Marian wanted advice and assistance after Laura's escape from the asylum, she would apply once more to the experience of Mr. Curl. In this case, the office in Chancery Lane was the very first place which he and Sir Percival would cause to be watched, and if the same persons were chosen for the purpose who had been employed to follow me before my departure from England, the fact of my return would in all probability be ascertained on that very day. I had thought, generally, of the chances of my being recognised in the streets, but the special risk connected with the office had never occurred to me until the present moment. It was too late now to repair this unfortunate error in judgment, too late to wish that I had made arrangements for meeting the lawyer in some place privately appointed beforehand. I could only resolve to be cautious on leaving Chancery Lane, and not to go straight home again under any circumstances whatever. After waiting a few minutes, I was shown into Mr. Curl's private room. He was a pale, thin, quiet, self-possessed man, with a very attentive eye, a very low voice, and a very undemonstrative manner, not, as I judged, ready with his sympathy where strangers were concerned, and not at all easy to disturb in his professional composure. A better man for my purpose could hardly have been found, if he committed himself to a decision at all, and if the decision was favourable, the strength of our case was as good as proved from that moment. Before I enter on the business which brings me here, I said, I ought to warn you, Mr. Curl, that the shortest statement I can make of it may occupy some little time. My time is at Miss Holcombe's disposal, he replied. Where any interests of hers are concerned, I represent my partner personally as well as professionally. It was his request that I should do so when he ceased to take an active part in business. May I inquire whether Mr. Gilmore is in England? He is not. He is living with his relatives in Germany. His health has improved but the period of his return is still uncertain. While we were exchanging these few preliminary words, he had been searching among the papers before him, and he now produced from them a sealed letter. I thought he was about to hand the letter to me, but apparently changing his mind, he placed it by itself on the table, settled himself in his chair, and silently waited to hear what I had to say without wasting a moment in prefatory words of any sort i entered on my narrative and put him in full possession of the events which have already been related in these pages lawyer as he was to the very marrow of his bones i startled him out of his professional composure expressions of incredulity and surprise which he could not repress interrupted me several times before i had done I persevered, however, to the end, and as soon as I reached it, boldly asked the one important question. What is your opinion, Mr. Curl? 
he was too cautious to commit himself to an answer without taking time to recover his self-possession first. Before I give my opinion, he said, I must beg permission to clear the ground by a few questions. He put the questions, sharp, suspicious, unbelieving questions, which clearly showed me, as they proceeded, that he thought I was the victim of a delusion, and that he might even have doubted, but for my introduction to him by Miss Halcombe, whether I was not attempting the perpetration of a cunningly designed fraud. "'Do you believe that I have spoken the truth, Mr. Curl?' I asked, when he had done examining me. "'So far as your own convictions are concerned, I am certain you have spoken the truth,' he replied. "'I have the highest esteem for Miss Halcombe, and I have, therefore, every reason to respect a gentleman whose mediation she trusts in a matter of this kind. I will even go farther, if you like, and admit for courtesy's sake, and for argument's sake, that the identity of Lady Glyde as a living person is a proved fact to Miss Halcombe and yourself. But you come to me for a legal opinion. As a lawyer, and as a lawyer only, it is my duty to tell you, Mr. Hartwright, that you have not the shadow of a case. You put it strongly, Mr. Curl. I will try to put it plainly as well. The evidence of Lady Glyde's death is on the face of it, clear and satisfactory. There is her aunt's testimony to prove that she came to Count Fosco's house, that she fell ill, and that she died. There is the testimony of the medical certificate to prove the death, and to show that it took place under natural circumstances. There is the fact of the funeral at Limeridge, and there is the assertion of the inscription on the tomb. That is the case you want to overthrow, what evidence have you to support the declaration on your side that the person who died and was buried was not Lady Glyde? Let us run through the main points of your statement and see what they are worth. Miss Halcombe goes to a certain private asylum and there sees a certain female patient. It is known that a woman named Anne Catherick and bearing an extraordinary personal resemblance to Lady Glyde, escaped from the asylum. It is known that the person received there last July was received as Anne Catherick brought back. It is known that the gentleman who brought her back warned Mr. Fairley that it was part of her insanity to be bent on personating his dead niece. And it is known that she did repeatedly declare herself in the asylum when no one believed her, to be Lady Glyde. These are all facts. What have you to set against them? Miss Halcombe's recognition of the woman, which recognition after events invalidate or contradict? Does Miss Halcombe assert her supposed sister's identity to the owner of the asylum, and take legal means for rescuing her? No. She secretly bribes a nurse to let her escape. When the patient has been released in this doubtful manner, and is taken to Mr. Fairley, does he recognise her? Is he staggered for one instant in his belief of his niece's death? No. Do the servants recognise her? No. Is she kept in the neighbourhood to assert her own identity, and to stand the test of further proceedings? No. She is privately taken to London. 
in the meantime you have recognized her also but you are not a relative you are not even an old friend of the family the servants contradict you and mr fairley contradicts miss halcombe and the supposed lady glyde contradicts herself she declares she passed the night in london at a certain house your own evidence shows that she has never been near that house and your own admission is that her condition of mind prevents you from producing her anywhere to submit to investigation and to speak for herself i pass over minor points of evidence on both sides to save time and i ask you if this case were to go now into a court of law to go before a jury bound to take facts as they reasonably appear where are your proofs i was obliged to wait and collect myself before i could answer him it was the first time the story of laura and the story of marion had been presented to me from a stranger's point of view the first time the terrible obstacles that lay across our path had been made to show themselves in their true character there can be no doubt i said that the facts as you have stated them appear to tell against us but but you think those facts can be explained away interposed mr curl let me tell you the result of my experience on that point when an english jury has to choose between a plain fact on the surface and a long explanation under the surface it always takes the fact in preference to the explanation for example a lady glide i call the lady you represent by that name for argument's sake declares she has slept at a certain house and it is proved that she has not slept at that house you explain this circumstance by entering into the state of her mind and deducing from it a metaphysical conclusion i don't say the conclusion is wrong i only say that the jury will take the fact of her contradicting herself in preference to any reason for the contradiction that you can offer but is it not possible i urged by dint of patience and exertion to discover additional evidence miss halcombe and i have a few hundred pounds he looked at me with a half-suppressed pity and shook his head consider the subject mr hartwright from your own point of view he said if you are right about sir percival glyde and canfosco which i don't admit mind every imaginable difficulty will be thrown in the way of your getting fresh evidence every obstacle of litigation would be raised every point in the case would be systematically contested and by the time we had spent our thousands instead of our hundreds the final result would in all probability be against us questions of identity where instances of personal resemblance are concerned are in themselves the hardest of all questions to settle the hardest even when they are free from the complications which beset this case we are now discussing i really see no prospect of throwing any light whatever on this extraordinary affair even if the person buried in limeridge churchyard be not lady glyde she was in life on your own showing so like her that we should gain nothing if we applied for the necessary authority to have the body exhumed in short there is no case mr hartwright there is really no case 
I was determined to believe that there was a case, and in that determination shifted my ground, and appealed to him once more. Are there not other proofs that we might produce, besides the proof of identity, I asked? Not as you are situated, he replied. The simplest and surest of all proofs, the proof by comparison of dates, is, as I understand, altogether out of your reach. If you could show a discrepancy between the date of the doctor's certificate and the date of Lady Glyde's journey to London, the matter would wear a totally different aspect, and I should be the first to say, let us go on. That date may yet be recovered, Mr. Kerr. On the day when it is recovered, Mr. Hartwright, you will have a case. If you have any prospect at this moment of getting at it, tell me, and we shall see if I can advise you. I considered. The housekeeper could not help us. Laura could not help us. Marion could not help us. In all probability, the only persons in existence who knew the date were Sir Percival and the Count. I can think of no means of ascertaining the date at present, I said, because I can think of no persons who are sure to know it but Count Fosco and Sir Percival Glyde. Mr. Curl's calmly attentive face relaxed for the first time into a smile. With your opinion of the conduct of those two gentlemen, he said, you don't expect help in that quarter, I presume. If they have combined to gain large sums of money by a conspiracy, they are not likely to confess it at any rate. They may be forced to confess it, Mr. Curl. By whom? By me. We both rose. He looked me attentively in the face, with more appearance of interest than he had shown yet. I could see that I had perplexed him a little. You are very determined, he said. You have no doubt a personal motive for proceeding, into which it is not my business to inquire. If a case can be produced in the future, I can only say my best assistance is at your service. At the same time, I must warn you, as the money question always enters into the law question, that I see little hope, even if you ultimately establish the fact of Lady Glyde's being alive, of recovering her fortune. The foreigner would probably leave the country before proceedings were commenced, and Sir Percival's embarrassments are numerous enough and pressing enough to transfer almost any sum of money he may possess from himself to his creditors. You are, of course, aware. I stopped him at that point. Let me beg that we may not discuss Lady Clyde's affairs, I said. I have never known anything about them in former times, and I know nothing of them now, except that our fortune is lost. You are right in assuming that I have personal motives for stirring in this matter. I wish those motives to be always as disinterested as they are at the present moment. He tried to interpose and explain. I was a little heated, I suppose, by feeling that he had doubted me, and I went on bluntly, without waiting to hear him. There shall be no money motive, I said, no idea of personal advantage in the service I mean to render to Lady Glyde. She has been cast out as a stranger from the house in which she was born. A lie which records her death has been written on her mother's tomb, and there are two men, alive and unpunished, who are responsible for it. That house shall open again to receive her in the presence of every soul who followed the false funeral to the grave. That lie 
shall be publicly erased from the tombstone by the authority of the head of the family, and those two men shall answer for their crime to me, though the justice that sits in tribunals is powerless to pursue them. I have given my life to that purpose, and alone as I stand, if God spares me, I will accomplish it. He drew back towards his table, and said nothing. His face showed plainly that he thought my delusion had got the better of my reason, and that he considered it totally useless to give me any more advice. "'We each keep our opinion, Mr. Curl,' I said, "'and we must wait till the events of the future decide between us. "'In the meantime, I am much obliged to you "'for the attention you have given to my statement. "'You have shown me that the legal remedy lies, "'in every sense of the word, beyond our means. "'We cannot produce the law-proof, "'and we are not rich enough to pay the law-expenses.' It is something gained to know that. I bowed and walked to the door. He called me back, and gave me the letter which I had seen in place on the table by itself at the beginning of our interview. This came by post a few days ago, he said. Perhaps you will not mind delivering it. Pray tell Miss Holcomb at the same time that I sincerely regret being thus far unable to help her, except by advice which will not be more welcome, I am afraid, to her than to you. I looked at the letter while he was speaking. It was addressed to Miss Holcomb, care of Mrs. Gilmore and Curl, Chancery Lane. The handwriting was quite unknown to me. On leaving the room, I asked one last question. Do you happen to know, I said, if Sir Percival Glyde is still in Paris? He has returned to London, replied Mr. Curl, at least I heard so from his solicitor, whom I met yesterday. After that answer, I went out. On leaving the office, the first precaution to be observed was to abstain from attracting attention by stopping to look about me. I walked towards one of the quietest of the large squares on the north of Holborn, then suddenly stopped and turned round at a place where a long stretch of pavement was left behind me. There were two men at the corner of the square who had stopped also, and who were standing talking together. After a moment's reflection, I turned back so as to pass them. One moved as I came near, and turned the corner leading from the square into the street. The other remained stationary. I looked at him as I passed, and instantly recognised one of the men who had watched me before I left England. If I had been free to follow my own instincts, I should probably have begun by speaking to the man, and have ended by knocking him down. But I was bound to consider consequences. If I once placed myself publicly in the wrong, I put the weapons at once into Sir Percival's hands. There was no choice but to oppose cunning by cunning. I turned into the street, down which the second man had disappeared, and passed him, waiting in the doorway. He was a stranger to me, and I was glad to make sure of his personal appearance in case of future annoyance. Having done this, I again walked northward till I reached the new road. There I turned aside to the west, having the men behind me all the time, and waited at a point where I knew myself to be at some distance from a cab stand, until a fast two-wheel cab empty should happen to pass me. One passed in a few minutes. I jumped him, 
and told the man to drive rapidly towards Hyde Park. There was no second fast cab for the spies behind me. I saw them dart across to the other side of the road, to follow me by running, until a cab or a cab stand came in their way. But I had the start of them, and when I stopped the driver and got out, they were nowhere in sight. I crossed Hyde Park, and made sure on the open ground that I was free. When I at last turned my steps homewards, it was not till many hours later, not till after dark. I found Marion waiting for me alone in the little sitting-room. She had persuaded Laura to go to rest, after first promising to show me her drawing the moment I came in. The poor little dim faint sketch, so trifling in itself, so touching in its associations, was propped up carefully on the table with two books, and was placed where the faint light of the one candle we allowed ourselves might fall on it to the best advantage. I sat down to look at the drawing, and to tell Marion in whispers what had happened. The partition which divided us from the next room was so thin that we could almost hear Laura's breathing, and we might have disturbed her if we had spoken aloud. Marion preserved her composure while I described my interview with Mr. Curl, but her face became troubled when I spoke next of the men who had followed me from the lawyer's office, and when I told her of the discovery of Sir Percival's return. "'Bad news, Walter,' she said. "'The worst news you could bring. Have you nothing more to tell me?' "'I have something to give you,' I replied, handing her the note which Mr. Curl had confided to my care. She looked at the address, and recognised the handwriting instantly. "'You know your correspondent?' I said. "'Too well,' she answered. "'My correspondent is Count Fosca. With that reply, she opened the note. Her face flushed deeply while she read it. Her eyes brightened with anger as she handed it to me to read in my turn. The note contained these lines. Impelled by honourable admiration, honourable to myself, honourable to you, I write, magnificent Marion, in the interests of your tranquillity, to say two consoling words. Fear nothing. Exercise your fine natural sense, and remain in retirement. Dear and admirable woman, invite no dangerous publicity. Resignation is sublime, adopt it. The modest repose of home is eternally fresh, enjoy it. The storms of life pass harmless over the valley of seclusion. Dwell, dear lady, in the valley. Do this, and I authorize you to fear nothing. No new calamity shall lacerate your sensibilities, sensibilities precious to me as my own. You shall not be molested, the fair companion of your retreat shall not be pursued. She has found a new asylum in your heart priceless asylum i envy her and leave her there a one last word of affectionate warning of paternal caution and i turn myself away from the charm of addressing you i close these fervent lines advance no farther than you have gone already compromise no serious interests threaten nobody do not i implore you force me into action me the man of action when it is the cherished object of my ambition to be passive, to restrict the vast reach of my energies and my combinations for your sake. 
if you have rash friends moderate their deplorable ardour if mr hartwright returns to england hold no communication with him i walk on a path of my own and possible follows at my heels on the day when mr hartwright crosses that path he is a lost man the only signature to these lines was the initial letter f surrounded by a circle of intricate flourishes i threw the letter on the table with all the contempt that i felt for it he is trying to frighten you a sure sign that he has frightened himself i said she was too genuine a woman to treat the letter as i treated it the insolent familiarity of the language was too much for her self-control as she looked at me across the table her hands clenched themselves in her lap and the old quick fiery temper flamed out again brightly in her cheeks and her eyes walter she said if ever those two men are at your mercy and if you are obliged to spare one of them don't let it be the count i will keep this letter marion to help my memory when the time comes she looked at me attentively as i put the letter away in my pocket-book when the time comes she repeated can you speak of the future as if you are certain of it certain after what you have heard in mr curl's office after what has happened to you to-day i don't count the time from to-day marion all i have done to-day is to ask another man to act for me i count from to-morrow why from to-morrow because to-morrow i mean to act for myself how i shall go to blackwater by the first train and return i hope at night to blackwater yes i have had time to think since i left mr curl his opinion on one point confirms my own we must persist to the last in hunting down the date of laura's journey the one weak point in the conspiracy and probably the one chance of proving that she is a living woman centre in the discovery of that date you mean said marion the discovery that laura did not leave blackwater park till after the date of her death on the doctor's certificate certainly what makes you think it might have been after laura can tell us nothing of the time she was in london but the owner of the asylum told you that she was received there on the twenty seventh of july i doubt count fosco's ability to keep her in london and to keep her insensible to all that was passing around her more than one night in that case she must have started on the twenty sixth and must have come to london one day after the date of her own death on the doctor's certificate if we can prove that date we prove our case against sir percival and the count yes yes i see but how is the proof to be obtained mrs mitchelson's narrative has suggested to me two ways of trying to obtain it one of them is to question the doctor mr dawson who must know when he resumed his attendance at blackwater park after laura left the house the other is to make inquiries at the inn to which sir percival drove away by himself at night we know that his departure followed laura's after the lapse of a few hours and we may get at the date in that way the attempt is at least worth making and to-morrow i am determined it shall be made and suppose it fails i look at the worst now walter but i will look at the best if disappointments come to try us suppose no one can help you at blackwater there are two men who can help me and shall help me in london sir percival and the count innocent people may well forget the date but they are guilty and they know it if i fail everywhere else 
I mean to force a confession out of one or both of them on my own terms. All the woman flushed up in Marion's face as I spoke. Begin with the Count, she whispered eagerly. For my sake, begin with the Count. We must begin, for Laura's sake, where there is the best chance of success, I replied. The colour faded from her face again, and she shook her head sadly. Yes, she said, you are right. It was mean and miserable of me to say that. I try to be patient, Walter, and succeed better now than I did in happier times. But I have a little of my old temper still left, and it will get the better of me when I think of the Gant. His turn will come, I said. But remember, there is no weak place in his life that we know of yet. I waited a little to let her recover her self-possession, and then spoke the decisive words. Mariam, there is a weak place we both know of in Sir Percival's life. You mean the secret? Yes, the secret. It is our only sure hold on him. I can force him from his position of security. I can drag him and his villainy into the face of day by no other means. Whatever the Count may have done, Sir Percival has consented to the conspiracy against Laura from another motive besides the motive of gain. You heard him tell the Count that he believed his wife knew enough to ruin him. You heard him say that he was a lost man, if the secret of Anne Catherick was known. Yes, yes, I did. Well, Marian, when our other resources have failed us, I mean to know the secret. My old superstition clings to me even yet. I say again, the woman in white is a living influence in our three lives. The end is appointed, the end is drawing us on and Anne Catherick, dead in her grave, points the way to it still. End of chapter 26 Chapter 27 of The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins This deeprovox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tony Addison. 5. The story of my first inquiries in Hampshire is soon told. My early departure from London enabled me to reach Mr. Dawson's house in the forenoon. Our interview, so far as the object of my visit was concerned, led to no satisfactory result. Mr. Dawson's books certainly showed when he had resumed his attendance on Miss Halcombe at Blackwater Park, but it was not possible to calculate back from this date with any exactness, without such help from Mrs. Mitchelson as I knew she was unable to afford. She could not say from memory, who in similar cases ever can, how many days had elapsed between the renewal of the doctor's attendance on his patient and the previous departure of Lady Glyde. She was almost certain of having mentioned the circumstance of the departure to Miss Halcombe on the day after it happened, but then she was no more able to fix the date of the day on which this disclosure took place than to fix the date of the day before, when Lady Glyde had left for London. Neither could she calculate with any nearer approach to exactness the time that had passed from the departure of her mistress to the period when the undated letter from Madame Fosco arrived. 
lastly, as if to complete the series of difficulties, the doctor himself, having been ill at the time, had omitted to make his usual entry of the day of the week and month, when the gardener from Blackwater Park had called on him to deliver Mrs. Mitchelson's message. Hopeless of obtaining assistance from Mr. Dawson, I resolved to try next if I could establish the date of Sir Percival's arrival at Knowlesbury. It seemed like a fatality. When I reached Knowlesbury, the inn was shut up, and bills were posted on the walls. The speculation had been a bad one, as I was informed, ever since the time of the railway. The new hotel at the station had gradually absorbed the business, and the old inn, which we knew to be the inn at which Sir Percival had put up, had been closed about two months since. The proprietor had left the town with all his goods and chattels, and where he had gone I could not positively ascertain from any one. The four people of whom I inquired gave me four different accounts of his plans and projects when he left Knowlesbury. There were still some hours to spare before the last train left for London, and I drove back again in a fly from the Knowlesbury station to Blackwater Park, with the purpose of questioning the gardener and the person who kept the lodge. If they, too, proved unable to assist me, my resources for the present were at an end, and I might return to town. I dismissed the fly a mile distant from the park, and getting my directions from the driver, proceeded by myself to the house. As I turned into the lane from the high road, I saw a man with a carpet-bag walking before me rapidly on the way to the lodge. He was a little man, dressed in shabby black, and wearing a remarkably large hat. I set him down, as well as it was possible to judge, for a lawyer's clerk, and stopped at once to widen the distance between us. He had not heard me, and he walked on out of sight without looking back. When I passed through the gates myself, a little while afterwards, he was not visible. He had evidently gone on to the house. There were two women in the lodge. One of them was old, the other I knew at once, by Marion's description of her, to be Margaret Porcher. I asked first if Sir Percival was at the park, and receiving a reply in the negative, inquired next when he had left it. Neither of the women could tell me more than that he had gone away in the summer. I could extract nothing from Margaret Porcher but vacant smiles and shakings of the head. The old woman was a little more intelligent, and I managed to lead her into speaking of the manner of Sir Percival's departure, and of the alarm that it caused her. She remembered her master calling her out of bed, and remembered his frightening her by swearing, but the date at which the occurrence happened was, as she honestly acknowledged, quite beyond her. On leaving the lodge, I saw the gardener at work not far off. When I first addressed him, he looked at me rather distrustfully, but on my using Mrs. Mitchelson's name, with a civil reference to himself, he entered into conversation readily enough. 
there is no need to describe what passed between us. It ended as all my other attempts to discover the date had ended. The gardener knew that his master had driven away at night, some time in July, the last fortnight or the last ten days in the month, and knew no more. While we were speaking together, I saw the man in black with the large hat come out from the house and stand at some little distance observing us. Certain suspicions of his errand at Blackwater Park had already crossed my mind. They were now increased by the gardener's inability or unwillingness to tell me who the man was, and I determined to clear the way before me, if possible, by speaking to him. The plainest question I could put as a stranger would be to inquire if the house was allowed to be shown to visitors. I walked up to the man at once, and accosted him in those words. His look and manner unmistakably betrayed that he knew who I was, and that he wanted to irritate me into quarrelling with him. His reply was insolent enough to have answered the purpose, if I had been less determined to control myself. As it was, I met him with the most resolute politeness, apologised for my involuntary intrusion, which he called a trespass, and left the grounds. It was exactly as I suspected. The recognition of me, when I left Mr. Curl's office, had been evidently communicated to Sir Percival Glyde, and the man in black had been sent to the park in anticipation of my making inquiries at the house or in the neighbourhood. If I had given him the least chance of lodging any sort of legal complaint against me, the interference of the local magistrate would no doubt have been turned to account as a clog on my proceedings, and a means of separating me from Marion and Laura for some days at least. I was prepared to be watched on the way from Blackwater Park to the station, exactly as I had been watched in London the day before. But I could not discover at the time whether I was really followed on this occasion or not. The man in black might have had means of tracking me at his disposal, of which I was not aware. But I certainly saw nothing of him in his own person, either on the way to the station or afterwards, on my arrival at the London terminus in the evening. I reached home on foot, taking the precaution, before I approached our own door, of walking round by the loneliest street in the neighbourhood, and there stopping and looking back more than once over the open space behind me. I had first learned to use this stratagem against suspected treachery, in the wilds of Central America. And now I was practising it again, with the same purpose, and with even greater caution, in the heart of civilised London. Nothing had happened to alarm Marian during my absence. She asked eagerly what success I had met with. When I told her, she could not conceal her surprise at the indifference with which I spoke of the failure of my investigations thus far. The truth was 
that the ill-success of my inquiries had in no sense daunted me. I had pursued them as a matter of duty, and I had expected nothing from them. In the state of my mind at that time, it was almost a relief to me to know that the struggle was now narrowed to a trial of strength between myself and Sir Percival Glyde. The vindictive motive had mingled itself all along with my other and better motives, and I confess it was a satisfaction to me to feel that the surest way, the only way left, of serving Laura's cause was to fasten my hold firmly on the villain who had married her. While I acknowledge that I was not strong enough to keep my motives above the reach of this instinct of revenge, I can honestly say something in my own favour on the other side. No base speculation on the future relations of Laura and myself, and on the private and personal concessions which I might force from Sir Percival, if I once had him at my mercy, ever entered my mind. I never said to myself, if I do succeed, it shall be one result of my success, that I put it out of her husband's power to take her from me again. I could not look at her and think of the future with such thoughts as these. The sad sight of the change in her from her former self made the one interest of my love an interest of tenderness and compassion which her father or her brother might have felt, and which I felt, God knows, in my inmost heart. All my hopes looked no further on now than to the day of her recovery, there till she was strong again and happy again, there till she could look at me as she had once looked, and speak to me as she had once spoken, the future of my happiest thoughts and my dearest wishes ended. These words are written under no prompting of idle self-contemplation. Passages in this narrative are soon to come which will set the minds of others in judgment on my conduct. It is right that the best and the worst of me should be fairly balanced before that time. On the morning after my return from Hampshire, I took Marianne upstairs into my working-room, and there laid before her the plan that I had matured thus far, for mastering the one assailable point in the life of Sir Percival Glyde. The way to the secret lay through the mystery, hitherto impenetrable to all of us, of the woman in white. The approach to that, in its turn, might be gained by obtaining the assistance of Anne Catherick's mother, and the only ascertainable means of prevailing on Mrs. Catherick to act or to speak in the matter, depended on the chance of my discovering local particulars, and family particulars first of all, from Mrs. Clements. After thinking the subject over carefully, I felt certain that I could only begin the new inquiries by placing myself in communication with the faithful friend and protectress of Anne Catherick. The first difficulty, then, was to find Mrs. Clements. I was indebted to Marian's quick perception for meeting this necessity at once, by the best and simplest means. She proposed to write to the farm near Limeridge, 
Todd's corner, to inquire whether Mrs. Clements had communicated with Mrs. Todd during the past few months. How Mrs. Clements had been separated from Anne, it was impossible for us to say, but that separation once effected, it would certainly occur to Mrs. Clements to inquire after the missing woman in the neighbourhood of all others to which she was known to be most attached, the neighbourhood of Limeridge. I saw directly that Marian's proposal offered us a prospect of success, and she wrote to Mrs. Todd accordingly by that day's post. While we were waiting for the reply, I made myself master of all the information Marian could afford on the subject of Sir Percival's family and of his early life. She could only speak on these topics from hearsay, but she was reasonably certain of the truth of what little she had to tell. Sir Percival was an only child. His father, Sir Felix Glyde, had suffered from his birth under a painful and incurable deformity, and had shunned all society from his earliest years. His sole happiness was in the enjoyment of music, and he had married a lady with taste similar to his own, who was said to be a most accomplished musician. He inherited the Blackwater property while still a young man. Neither he nor his wife, after taking possession, made advances of any sort towards the society of the neighbourhood, and no one endeavoured to tempt them into abandoning their reserve, with the one disastrous exception of the rector of the parish. The rector was the worst of all innocent mischief-makers, an overzealous man. He had heard that Sir Felix had left college with the character of being little better than a revolutionist in politics and an infidel in religion, and he arrived conscientiously at the conclusion that it was his bounden duty to summon the lord of the manor to hear sound views enunciated in the parish church. Sir Felix fiercely resented the clergyman's well-meant but ill-directed interference, insulting him so grossly and so publicly that the families in the neighbourhood sent letters of indignant remonstrance to the park, and even the tenants of the Blackwater property expressed their opinion as strongly as they dared. The baronet, who had no country tastes of any kind, and no attachment to the estate or to any one living on it, declared that society at Blackwater should never have a second chance of annoying him, and left the place from that moment. After a short residence in London, he and his wife departed for the continent, and never returned to England again. They lived part of the time in France, and part in Germany, always keeping themselves in the strict retirement which the morbid sense of his own personal deformity had made a necessity to Sir Felix. Their son, Percival, had been born abroad, and had been educated there by private tutors. His mother was the first of his parents whom he lost. His father died a few years after her, either in 1825 or 1826. Sir Percival had been in England as a young man once or twice before that period, but his acquaintance with the late Mr. Fairley did not begin till after the time of his father's death. 
they soon became very intimate, although Sir Percival was seldom or never at Limeridge House in those days. Mr. Frederick Fairley might have met him once or twice in Mr. Philip Fairley's company, but he could have known little of him at that or at any other time. Sir Percival's only intimate friend in the Fairley family had been Laura's father. These were all the particulars that I could gain from Marion. They suggested nothing which was useful to my present purpose, but I noted them down carefully, in the event of their proving to be of importance at any future period. Mrs. Todd's reply, addressed by our own wish to a post-office at some distance from us, had arrived at its destination when I went to apply for it. The chances, which had been all against us hitherto, turned from this moment in our favour. Mrs. Todd's letter contained the first item of information of which we were in search. Mrs. Clements, it appeared, had, as we had conjectured, written to Todd's corner, asking pardon in the first place for the abrupt manner in which she and Anne had left their friends at the farmhouse on the morning after I had met the woman in white in Limeridge churchyard, and then informing Mrs. Todd of Anne's disappearance, and entreating that she would cause inquiries to be made in the neighbourhood, on the chance that the lost woman might have strayed back to Limeridge. In making this request, Mrs. Clements had been careful to add to it the address at which she might always be heard of, and that address Mrs. Todd now transmitted to Marion. It was in London, and within half an hour's walk of our own lodging. In the words of the proverb, I was resolved not to let the grass grow under my feet. The next morning I set forth to seek an interview with Mrs. Clements. This was my first step forward in the investigation. The story of the desperate attempt to which I now stood committed begins here. 6. The address communicated by Mrs. Todd took me to a lodging-house situated in a respectable street near the Gray's Inn Road. When I knocked, the door was opened by Mrs. Clements herself. She did not appear to remember me, and asked what my business was. I recalled to her our meeting in Limeridge churchyard at the close of my interview there with the woman in white, taking special care to remind her that I was the person who assisted Anne Catherick, as Anne had herself declared, to escape the pursuit from the asylum. This was my only claim to the confidence of Mrs. Clements. She remembered the circumstance the moment I spoke of it, and asked me into the parlour, in the greatest anxiety to know if I had brought her any news of Anne. It was impossible for me to tell her the whole truth, without, at the same time, entering into particulars on the subject of the conspiracy, which it would have been dangerous to confide to a stranger. I could only abstain most carefully from raising any false hopes, and then explain that the object of my visit was to discover the persons who were really responsible for Anne's disappearance. I even added, so as to exonerate myself from any after-reproach of my own conscience, 
that I entertained not the least hope of being able to trace her, that I believed we should never see her alive again, and that my main interest in the affair was to bring to punishment two men whom I suspected to be concerned in luring her away, and at whose hands I and some dear friends of mine had suffered a grievous wrong. With this explanation I left it to Mrs. Clemens to say whether our interest in the matter, whatever difference there might be in the motives which actuated us, was not the same, and whether she felt any reluctance to forward my object by giving me such information on the subject of my inquiries as she happened to possess. The poor woman was at first too much confused and agitated to understand thoroughly what I said to her. She could only reply that I was welcome to anything she could tell me in return for the kindness I had shown to Anne. But as she was not very quick and ready at the best of times in talking to strangers, she would beg me to put her in the right way and to say where I wished her to begin. Knowing by experience that the plainest narrative attainable from persons who are not accustomed to arrange their ideas is the narrative which goes far enough back at the beginning to avoid all impediments of retrospection in its course. I asked Mrs. Clements to tell me first what had happened after she had left Limeridge, and so, by watchful questioning, carried her on from point to point till we reached the period of Anne's disappearance. The substance of the information which I thus obtained was as follows. On leaving the farm at Todd's Corner, Mrs. Clements and Anne had travelled that day as far as Derby, and had remained there a week on Anne's account. They had then gone on to London, and had lived in the lodging occupied by Mrs. Clements at that time for a month or more when circumstances connected with the house and the landlord had obliged them to change their quarters. Anne's terror of being discovered in London or its neighbourhood, whenever they ventured to walk out, had gradually communicated itself to Mrs. Clements, and she had determined on removing to one of the most out-of-the-way places in England, to the town of Grimsby in Lincolnshire, where her deceased husband had passed all his early life. His relatives were respectable people, settled in the town. They had always treated Mrs. Clements with great kindness, and she thought it impossible to do better than go there and take the advice of her husband's friends. Anne would not hear of returning to her mother at Wilmingham, because she had been removed to the asylum from that place and because Sir Percival would be certain to go back there and find her again. There was serious weight in this objection, and Mrs. Clements felt that it was not to be easily removed. At Grimsby, the first serious symptoms of illness had shown themselves in Anne. They appeared soon after the news of Lady Glyde's marriage had been made public in the newspapers, and had reached her through that medium. The medical man, who was sent for to attend the sick woman, discovered at once that she was suffering from a serious affection of the heart. 
the illness lasted long left her very weak and returned at intervals though with mitigated severity again and again they remained at grimsby in consequence during the first half of the new year and there they might probably have stayed much longer but for the sudden resolution which anne took at this time to venture back to hampshire for the purpose of obtaining a private interview with lady glyde mrs clemens did all in her power to oppose the execution of this hazardous and unaccountable project no explanation of her motives was offered by anne except that she believed the day of her death was not far off and that she had something on her mind which must be communicated to lady glyde at any risk in secret her resolution to accomplish this purpose was so firmly settled that she declared her intention of going to hampshire by herself if mrs clemens felt any unwillingness to go with her the doctor on being consulted was of opinion that serious opposition to her wishes would in all probability produce another and perhaps a fatal fit of illness and mrs clements under this advice yielded to necessity and once more with sad forebodings of trouble and danger to come allowed anne catherick to have her own way on the journey from london to hampshire mrs clements discovered that one of their fellow-passengers was well acquainted with the neighbourhood of blackwater and could give her all the information she needed on the subject of localities in this way she found out that the only place they could go to which was not dangerously near to sir percival's residence was a large village called sandon the distance here from blackwater park was between three and four miles and that distance and back again anne had walked on each occasion when she had appeared in the neighbourhood of the lake for the few days during which they were at sandon without being discovered they had lived a little away from the village in the cottage of a decent widow woman who had a bedroom to let and whose discreet silence mrs clemens had done her best to secure for the first week at least she had also tried hard to induce anne to be content with writing to lady glyde in the first instance but the failure of the warning contained in the anonymous letter sent to limeridge had made anne resolute to speak this time and obstinate in the determination to go on her errand alone mrs clements nevertheless followed her privately on each occasion when she went to the lake without however venturing near enough to the boat-house to be witness of what took place there when anne returned for the last time from the dangerous neighbourhood the fatigue of walking day after day distances which were far too great for her strength added to the exhausting effect of the agitation from which she had suffered produced the result which mrs clement had dreaded all along the old pain over the heart and the other symptoms of the illness at grimsby returned and anne was confined to her bed in the cottage in this emergency the first necessity as mrs clements knew by experience was to endeavour to quiet anne's anxiety of mind and for this purpose 
the good woman went herself the next day to the lake to try if she could find lady glyde who would be sure as anne said to take her daily walk to the boat-house and prevail on her to come back privately to the cottage near sandon on reaching the outskirts of the plantation mrs clements encountered not lady glyde but a tall stout elderly gentleman with a book in his hand in other words count fosco the count after looking at her very attentively for a moment asked if she expected to see any one in that place and added before she could reply that he was waiting there with a message from lady glyde but that he was not quite certain whether the person then before him answered the description of the person with whom he was desired to communicate upon this mrs clements at once confided her errand to him and entreated that he would help to allay anne's anxiety by trusting his message to her the count most readily and kindly complied with her request the message he said was a very important one lady glyde entreated anne and her good friend to return immediately to london as she felt certain that sir percival would discover them if they remained any longer in the neighbourhood of blackwater she was herself going to london in a short time and if mrs clements and anne would go there first and would let her know what their address was they should hear from her and see her in a fortnight or less the count added that he had already attempted to give a friendly warning to anne herself but that she had been too much startled by seeing that he was a stranger to let him approach and speak to her to this mrs clements replied in the greatest alarm and distress that she asked nothing better than to take anne safely to london but that there was no present hope of removing her from the dangerous neighbourhood as she lay ill in her bed at that moment the count inquired if mrs clements had sent for medical advice and hearing that she had hitherto hesitated to do so from the fear of making their position publicly known in the village informed her that he was himself a medical man and that he would go back with her if she pleased and see what could be done for anne mrs clements feeling a natural confidence in the count as a person trusted with a secret message from lady glyde gratefully accepted the offer and they went back together to the cottage anne was asleep when they got there the count started at the sight of her evidently from astonishment at her resemblance to lady glyde poor mrs clements supposed that he was only shocked to see how ill she was he would not allow her to be awakened he was contented with putting questions to mrs clements about her symptoms with looking at her and with lightly touching her pulse sandon was a large enough place to have a grocer's and druggist's shop in it and thither the count went to write his prescription and to get the medicine made up he brought it back himself and told mrs clements 
that the medicine was a powerful stimulant, and that it would certainly give Anne strength to get up, and bear the fatigue of a journey to London of only a few hours. The remedy was to be administered at stated times on that day and on the day after. On the third day she would be well enough to travel, and he arranged to meet Mrs. Clements at the Blackwater station, and to see them off by the midday train. If they did not appear, he would assume that Anne was worse, and would proceed at once to the cottage. As events turned out, no such emergency as this occurred. This medicine had an extraordinary effect on Anne, and the good results of it were helped by the assurance Mrs. Clemens could now give her that she would soon see Lady Glyde in London. At the appointed day and time, when they had not been quite so long as a week in Hampshire altogether, they arrived at the station. The Count was waiting there for them, and was talking to an elderly lady, who appeared to be going to travel by the train to London also. He most kindly assisted them, and put them into the carriage himself, begging Mrs. Clements not to forget to send her address to Lady Glyde. The elderly lady did not travel in the same compartment, and they did not notice what became of her on reaching the London terminus. Mrs. Clements secured respectable lodgings in a quiet neighbourhood, and then wrote, as she had engaged to do, to inform Lady Glyde of the address. A little more than a fortnight passed, and no answer came. At the end of that time, a lady, the same elderly lady whom they had seen at the station, called in a cab, and said that she came from Lady Glyde, who was then at an hotel in London, and who wished to see Mrs. Clements, for the purpose of arranging a future interview with Anne. Mrs. Clements expressed her willingness, Anne being present at the time, and entreating her to do so, to forward the object in view, especially as she was not required to be away from the house for more than half an hour at the most. She and the elderly lady, clearly Madame Fosco, then left in the cab. The lady stopped the cab, after it had driven some distance, at a shop before they got to the hotel, and begged Mrs. Clements to wait for her for a few minutes, while she made a purchase that had been forgotten. She never appeared again. After waiting some time, Mrs. Clements became alarmed, and ordered the cabman to drive back to her lodgings. When she got there, after an absence of rather more than half an hour, Anne was gone. The only information to be obtained from the people of the house was derived from the servant who waited on the lodgers. She had opened the door to a boy from the street, who had left a letter for the young woman who lived on the second floor, the part of the house which Mrs. Clements occupied. The servant had delivered the letter, had then gone downstairs, and five minutes afterwards had observed Anne open the front door 
and go out, dressed in her bonnet and shawl. She had probably taken the letter with her, for it was not to be found, and it was therefore impossible to tell what inducement had been offered to make her leave the house. It must have been a strong one, for she would never stir out alone in London of her own accord. If Mrs. Clements had not known this by experience, nothing would have induced her to go away in the cab, even for so short a time as half an hour only. As soon as she could collect her thoughts, the first idea that naturally occurred to Mrs. Clements was to go and make enquiries at the asylum, to which she dreaded that Anne had been taken back. She went there the next day, having been informed of the locality in which the house was situated by Anne herself. The answer she received, her application having in all probability been made a day or two before the false Anne Catherick had really been consigned to safe-keeping in the asylum, was that no such person had been brought back there. She had then written to Mrs. Catherick at Wilmingham to know if she had seen or heard anything of her daughter, and had received an answer in the negative. After that reply had reached her, she was at the end of her resources, and perfectly ignorant where else to inquire or what else to do. From that time to this, she had remained in total ignorance of the cause of Anne's disappearance, and of the end of Anne's story. End of chapter 27Chapter twenty eight of The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tony Addison. Seven. Thus far, the information which I had received from Mrs. Clements, though it established facts of which I had not previously been aware, was of a preliminary character only. It was clear that the series of deceptions which had removed Anne Catherick to London, and separated her from Mrs. Clements, had been accomplished solely by Count Fosco and the Countess, and the question whether any part of the conduct of husband or wife had been of a kind to place either of them within reach of the law, might be well worthy of future consideration. But the purpose I had now in view led me in another direction than this. The immediate object of my visit to Mrs. Clement was to make some approach at least to the discovery of Sir Percival's secret, and she had said nothing as yet which advanced me on my way to that important end. I felt the necessity of trying to awaken her recollections of other times, persons, and events, than those on which her memory had hitherto been employed and when I next spoke, I spoke with that object indirectly in view. I wish I could be of any help to you in this sad calamity, I said. All I can do is to feel heartily for your distress. If Anne had been your own child, Mrs. Clements, you could have shown her no truer kindness. You could have made no readier sacrifices for her sake. There's no great merit in that, sir, said Mrs. Clements simply. 
the poor thing was as good as my own child to me. I nursed her from a baby, sir, bringing her up by hand, and a hard job it was to rear her. It wouldn't go to my heart so to lose her if I hadn't made her first short clothes and taught her to walk. I always said she was sent to console me for never having chick or child of my own, and now she's lost the old times keep coming back to my mind, and even at my age I can't help crying about her. I can't indeed, sir. I waited a little to give Mrs. Clements time to compose herself. Was the light that I had been looking for so long glimmering on me, far off as yet, in the good woman's recollections of Anne's early life? Did you know Mrs. Catherick before Anne was born? I asked. Not very long, sir. Not above four months. We saw a great deal of each other in that time, but we were never very friendly together. Her voice was steadier as she made that reply. Painful as many of her recollections might be, I observed that it was unconsciously a relief to her mind to revert to the dimly seen troubles of the past after dwelling so long on the vivid sorrows of the present. Were you and Mrs. Catherick neighbours, I inquired, leading her memory on as encouragingly as I could. Yes, sir, neighbours at Old Wilmingham. Old Wilmingham. There are two places of that name, then, in Hampshire. Well, sir, they used to be in those days, better than three and twenty years ago. They built a new town about two miles off, convenient to the river, and Old Wilmingham which was never much more than a village, got in time to be deserted. The new town is the place they call Wilmingham now. But the old parish church is the parish church still. It stands by itself, with the houses pulled down or gone to ruin all round it. I've lived to see sad changes. It was a pleasant, pretty place in my time. Did you live there before your marriage, Mrs. Clement? No, sir, I'm a Norfolk woman. It wasn't the place my husband belonged to either. He was from Grimsby, as I told you, and he served his apprenticeship there. But having friends down south, and hearing of an opening, he got into business at Southampton. It was in a small way, but he made enough for a plain man to retire on, and settled at Old Wilmingham. I went there with him when he married me, we were neither of us young, but we lived very happy together, happier than our neighbour Mr. Catherick lived along with his wife when they came to old Wilmingham a year or two afterwards. Was your husband acquainted with them before that? With Catherick, sir, not with his wife. She was a stranger to both of us. Some gentleman had made interest for Catherick, and he got the situation of clerk at Wilmingham Church, which was the reason of his coming to settle in our neighbourhood. He brought his newly married wife along with him, and we heard in course of time she had been lady's maid in a family that lived at Varnick Hall, near Southampton. Catherick had found it a hard matter to get her to marry him, in consequence of her holding herself uncommonly high. He had asked and asked, and given the thing up at last, 
seeing she was so contrary about it. When he had given it up, she turned contrary just the other way, and came to him of her own accord, without rhyme or reason, seemingly. My poor husband always said that was the time to have given her a lesson, but Catherick was too fond of her to do anything of the sort. He never checked her, either before they were married or after. He was a quick man in his feelings, letting them carry him a deal too far, now in one way and now in another, and he would have spoiled a better wife than Mrs. Catherick if a better had married him. I don't like to speak ill of any one, sir, but she was a heartless woman with a terrible will of her own, fond of foolish admiration and fine clothes, and not caring to show so much as decent outward respect to Catherick, kindly as he always treated her. My husband said he thought things would turn out badly when they first came to live near us, and his words proved true. Before they had been quite four months in our neighbourhood, there was a dreadful scandal and a miserable break-up in their household. Both of them were in fault. I am afraid both of them were equally in fault. You mean both husband and wife? Oh, no, sir. I don't mean Catherick. He was only to be pitied. I meant his wife and the person... And the person who caused the scandal. Yes, sir. A gentleman born and brought up who ought to have set a better example. You know him, sir, and my poor dear Anne knew him only too well. Sir Percival Glyde. Yes, Sir Percival Glyde. My heart beat fast. I thought I had my hand on the clue. How little I knew then of the windings of the labyrinths which were still to mislead me. Did Sir Percival live in your neighbourhood at that time, I asked? Uh, no, sir. He came among us as a stranger. His father had died not long before in foreign parts. I remember he was in mourning. He put up at the little inn on the river. They have pulled it down since that time, where gentlemen used to go to fish. He wasn't much noticed when he first came. It was a common thing enough for gentlemen to travel from all parts of England to fish in our river. Did he make his appearance in the village before Anne was born? Uh, yes, sir. Anne was born in the June month of 1827, and I think he came at the end of April or the beginning of May. Came as a stranger to all of you, a stranger to Mrs. Catherick, as well as to the rest of the neighbours. So we thought at first, sir, but when the scandal broke out, nobody believed they were strangers. I remember how it happened, as well as if it was yesterday. Catherick came into our garden one night, and woke us by throwing up a handful of gravel from the walk at our window. I heard him beg my husband, for the Lord's sake, to come down and speak to him. They were a long time together talking in the porch. When my husband came back upstairs, he was all of a tremble. He sat down on the side of the bed, and he says to me, Lizzie, I always told you that woman was a bad one. I always said she would end ill, and I'm afraid in my own mind that the end has come already. Catherick has found a lot of lace handkerchiefs and two fine rings and a new gold watch and chain hid away in his wife's drawer. Things that nobody but a born lady ought ever to have, and his wife won't say how she came by them. Does he think she stole them? says I. No, says he. 
Stealing would be bad enough, but it's worse than that. She's had no chance of stealing such things as those, and she's not a woman to take them if she had. They're gifts, Lizzie. There's her own initials engraved inside the watch. And Catherick has seen her talking privately, and carrying on as no married woman should, with that gentleman in mourning, Sir Percival Glyde. Don't you say anything about it. I've quieted Catherick for tonight. I've told him to keep his tongue to himself and his eyes and his ears open, and to wait a day or two till he can be quite certain. I believe you are both of you wrong, says I. It's not in nature, comfortable and respectable as she is here, that Mrs. Catherick should take up with a chance stranger like Sir Percival Glyde. Aye, but is he a stranger to her, says my husband. You forget how Catherick's wife came to marry him. She went to him of her own accord, after saying no over and over again when he asked her. There have been wicked women before her time, Lizzie, who have used honest men who loved them as a means of saving their characters, and I'm sorely afraid this Mrs. Catherick is as wicked as the worst of them. We shall see, says my husband. We shall soon see. And only two days afterwards we did see. Mrs. Clements waited for a moment before she went on. Even in that moment I began to doubt whether the clue that I thought I had found was really leading me to the central mystery of the labyrinth after all. Was this common, too common story of a man's treachery and a woman's frailty the key to a secret which had been the lifelong terror of Sir Percival Glyde? Well, sir, Catherick took my husband's advice and waited. Mrs. Clemens continued, and, as I told you, he hadn't long to wait. On the second day he found his wife and Sir Percival whispering together, quite familiar, close under the vestry of the church. I suppose they thought the neighbourhood of the vestry was the last place in the world where anybody would think of looking after them. But, however that may be, there they were. Sir Percival, being seemingly surprised and confounded, defended himself in such a guilty way that poor Catherick, whose quick temper I have told you of already, fell into a kind of frenzy at his own disgrace, and struck Sir Percival. He was no match, and I am sorry to say it, for the man who had wronged him, and he was beaten in the cruelest manner before the neighbours, who had come to the place on hearing the disturbance, could run in to part them. All this happened towards evening, and before nightfall. When my husband went to Catherick's house, he was gone, nobody knew where. No living soul in the village ever saw him again. He knew too well by that time what his wife's vile reason had been for marrying him, and he felt his misery and disgrace, especially after what had happened to him with Sir Percival, too keenly. The clergyman of the parish put an advertisement in the paper begging him to come back, and saying that he should not lose his situation or his friends. But Catherick had too much pride and spirit, as some people said, too much feeling, as I think, sir, to face his neighbours again and try to live down the memory of his disgrace. My husband heard from him when he had left England, and heard a second time, 
when he was settled and doing well in America. He is alive there now, as far as I know, but none of us in the old country, his wicked wife least of all, are ever likely to set eyes on him again. What became of Sir Percival, I inquired, did he stay in the neighbourhood? Ah, oh, not he, sir. The place was too hot to hold him. He was heard at high words with Mrs. Catherick the same night when the scandal broke out, and the next morning he took himself off. And Mrs. Catherick, surely she never remained in the village among the people who knew of her disgrace. She did, sir. She was hard enough and heartless enough to set the opinions of all her neighbours at flat defiance. She declared to everybody, from the clergyman downwards, that she was the victim of a dreadful mistake, and that all the scandal-mongers in the place should not drive her out of it, as if she was a guilty woman. All through my time she lived at old Wilmingham, and after my time, when the new town was building, and the respectable neighbours began moving to it, she moved too, as if she was determined to live among them, and scandalise them to the very last. There she is now, and there she will stop, in defiance of the best of them, to her dying day. But how has she lived through all those years, I asked? Was her husband able and willing to help her? Both able and willing, sir, said Mrs. Clements. In the second letter he wrote to my good man, he said she had borne his name and lived in his home, and wicked as she was, she must not starve like a beggar in the street. He could afford to make her some small allowance, and she might draw for it quarterly at a place in London. Did she accept the allowance? Not a farthing of it, sir. She said she would never be beholden to Catherick for a bit or drop if she lived to be a hundred, and she has kept her word ever since. When my poor dear husband died and left all to me, Catherick's letter was put in my possession with the other things and I told her to let me know if she was ever in want. I'll let all England know I'm in want, she said, before I tell Catherick, or any friend of Catherick's. Take that for your answer, and give it to him for an answer, if he ever writes again. Do you suppose that she had money of her own? Very little, if any, sir. It was said, and truly said, I am afraid, that her means of living came privately from Sir Percival Glyde. After that last reply, I waited a little to reconsider what I had heard. If I unreservedly accepted the story so far, it was now plain that no approach, direct or indirect, to the secret had yet been revealed to me, and that the pursuit of my object had ended again in leaving me face to face with the most palpable and the most disheartening failure. But there was one point in the narrative which made me doubt the propriety of accepting it unreservedly, and which suggested the idea of something hidden below the surface. I could not account to myself for the circumstance of the clerk's guilty wife voluntarily living out all her after-existence on the scene of her disgrace, the woman's own reported statement that she had taken this strange course as a practical assertion of her innocence did not satisfy me. It seemed to my mind more natural and more probable 
to assume that she was not so completely a free agent in this matter as she had herself asserted. In that case, who was the likeliest person to possess the power of compelling her to remain at Welmingham? The person, unquestionably, from whom she derived the means of living. She had refused assistance from her husband, she had no adequate resources of her own, she was a friendless, degraded woman. From what source should she derive help, but from the source at which report pointed? Sir Percival Glyde. Reasoning on these assumptions, and always bearing in mind the one certain fact to guide me, that Mrs. Catherick was in possession of the secret, I easily understood that it was Sir Percival's interest to keep her at Welmingham, because her character in that place was certain to isolate her from all communication with female neighbours, and to allow her no opportunities of talking incautiously in moments of free intercourse with inquisitive bosom friends. But what was the mystery to be concealed? Not Sir Percival's infamous connection with Mrs. Catherick's disgrace, for the neighbours were the very people who knew of it. Not the suspicion that he was Anne's father, for Welmingham was the place in which that suspicion must inevitably exist. If I accepted the guilty appearances described to me as unreservedly as others had accepted them, if I drew from them the same superficial conclusion which Mr. Catherick and all his neighbours had drawn, where was the suggestion, in all that I had heard, of a dangerous secret between Sir Percival and Mrs. Catherick, which had been kept hidden from that time to this? And yet, in those stolen meetings, in those familiar whisperings between the clerk's wife and the gentleman in mourning, the clue to discovery existed beyond a doubt. Was it possible that appearances in this case had pointed one way, while the truth lay all the while unsuspected in another direction? Could Mrs. Catherick's assertion that she was the victim of a dreadful mistake by any possibility be true? Or, assuming it to be false, could the conclusion which associated Sir Percival with her guilt have been founded in some inconceivable error? Had Sir Percival by any chance courted the suspicion that was wrong for the sake of diverting from himself some other suspicion that was right? Here, if I could find it, here was the approach to the secret, hidden deep under the surface, of the apparently unpromising story which I had just heard. My next questions were now directed to the one object of ascertaining whether Mr. Catterick had or had not arrived truly at the conviction of his wife's misconduct. The answers I received from Mrs. Clements left me in no doubt whatever on that point. Mrs. Catterick had, on the clearest evidence, compromised her reputation while a single woman with some person unknown and had married to save her character. It had been positively ascertained by calculations of time and place into which I need not enter particularly 
that the daughter who bore her husband's name was not her husband's child. The next object of inquiry, whether it was equally certain that Sir Percival must have been the father of Anne, was beset by far greater difficulties. I was in no position to try the probabilities on one side or on the other in this instance by any better test than the test of personal resemblance. I suppose you often saw Sir Percival when he was in your village, I said. Yes, sir, very often, replied Mrs. Clements. Did you ever observe that Anne was like him? She was not at all like him, sir. Was she like her mother, then? Not like her mother, either, sir. Mrs. Catherick was dark and full in the face. Not like her mother, and not like her supposed father. I knew that the test by personal resemblance was not to be implicitly trusted, but on the other hand it was not to be altogether rejected on that account. Was it possible to strengthen the evidence by discovering any conclusive facts in relation to the lives of Mrs. Catherick and Sir Percival before they either of them appeared at Old Wilmingham? When I asked my next questions, I put them with this view. When Sir Percival first arrived in your neighbourhood, I said, did you hear where he had come from last? No, sir. Some said from Blackwater Park, and some said from Scotland, but nobody knew. Was Mrs. Catherick living in service at Flarnock Hall immediately before her marriage? Yes, sir. And had she been long in her place? Three or four years, sir. I am not quite certain which. Did you ever hear the name of the gentleman to whom Varnack Hall belonged at that time? Oh, yes, sir. His name was Major Dunthorne. Did Mr. Catherick, or did anyone else you knew, ever hear that Sir Percival was a friend of Major Dunthorne's, or ever see Sir Percival in the neighbourhood of Varnack Hall? Catherick never did, sir, that I can remember, nor anyone else either that I know of. I noted down Major Dunthorne's name and address, on the chance that he might still be alive, and that it might be useful at some future time to apply to him. Meanwhile, the impression on my mind was now decidedly adverse to the opinion that Sir Percival was Anne's father, and decidedly favourable to the conclusion that the secret of his stolen interviews with Mrs. Catherick was entirely unconnected with the disgrace which the woman had inflicted on her husband's good name. I could think of no further inquiries which I might make to strengthen this impression. I could only encourage Mrs. Clements to speak next of Anne's early days, and watch for any chance suggestion which might in this way offer itself to me. I have not heard yet, I said, how the poor child born in all this sin and misery, came to be trusted, Mrs. Clements, to your care. There was nobody else, sir, to take the little helpless creature in hand, replied Mrs. Clements. The wicked mother seemed to hate it, as if the poor baby was in fault, from the day it was born. My heart was heavy for the child, and I made the offer to bring it up as tenderly as if it was my own, did Anne remain entirely under your care from that time? Not quite entirely, sir. 
Mrs. Catherick had her whims and fancies about it at times, and used now and then to lay claim to the child, as if she wanted to spite me for bringing it up. But these bits of hers never lasted for long. Poor little Anne was always returned to me and was always glad to get back, though she led but a gloomy life in my house, having no playmates like other children to brighten her up. Our longest separation was when her mother took her to Limeridge. Just at that time I lost my husband, and I felt it was as well in that miserable affliction that Anne should not be in the house. She was between ten and eleven years old then, slow at her lessons, poor soul, and not so cheerful as other children, but as pretty a little girl to look at as you would wish to see. I waited at home till her mother brought her back, and then I made the offer to take her with me to London. The truth being, sir, that I could not find it in my heart to stop at old Wilmingham after my husband's death. The place was so changed and so dismal to me. And did Mrs. Catherick consent to your proposal? No, sir. She came back from the north harder and bitterer than ever. Folks did say that she had been obliged to ask Sir Percival's leave to go to begin with, and that she only went to nurse her dying sister at Limeridge, because the poor woman was reported to have saved money, the truth being that she hardly left enough to bury her. These things may have soured Mrs. Catherick likely enough, but however that may be, she wouldn't hear of my taking the child away. She seemed to like distressing us both by parting us. All I could do was to give Anne my direction, and to tell her privately if she was ever in trouble to come to me. But years passed before she was free to come. I never saw her again, poor soul, till the night she escaped from the madhouse. You know, Mrs. Clements, why Sir Percival Glyde shut her up. I only know what Anne herself told me, sir. The poor thing used to ramble and wander about it sadly. She said her mother had got some secret of Sir Percival's to keep, and had let it out to her long after I left Hampshire, and when Sir Percival found she knew it, he shut her up. But she never could say what it was when I asked her. All she could tell me was, that her mother might be the ruin and destruction of Sir Percival if she chose. Mrs. Catrick may have let out just as much as that and no more. I'm next to certain I should have heard the whole truth from Anne, if she had really known it as she pretended to do, and as she very likely fancied she did, poor soul. This idea had more than once occurred to my own mind. I had already told Marian that I doubted whether Laura was really on the point of making any important discovery, when she and Anne Catherick were disturbed by Count Bosco at the boathouse. It was perfectly in character with Anne's mental affliction that she should assume an absolute knowledge of the secret on no better grounds than vague suspicion, derived from hints which her mother had incautiously let drop in her presence. Sir Percival's guilty distrust would, in that case, infallibly inspire him with the false idea that Anne knew all from her mother, just as it had afterwards fixed in his mind the equally false suspicion that his wife knew all from Anne. The time was passing, the morning was wearing away. It was doubtful, if I stayed longer, whether I should hear anything more from Mrs. Clements, 
that would be at all useful to my purpose. I had already discovered those local and family particulars in relation to Mrs. Catherick, of which I had been in search, and I had arrived at certain conclusions entirely new to me, which might immensely assist in directing the course of my future proceedings. I rose to take my leave, and to thank Mrs. Clements for the friendly readiness she had shown in affording me information. "'I am afraid you must have thought me very inquisitive,' I said. "'I have troubled you with more questions than many people would have cared to answer.' "'You are heartily welcome, sir, to anything I can tell you,' answered Mrs. Clements. She stopped and looked at me wistfully. "'But I do wish,' said the poor woman, "'you could have told me a little more about Anne, sir. "'I thought I saw something in your face when you came in, "'which looked as if you could. "'You can't think how hard it is not even to know "'whether she is living or dead. "'I could bear it better if I was only certain. "'You said you never expected we should see her alive again. "'Do you know, sir, do you know for truth, "'that it has pleased God to take her?' "'I was not proof against this appeal.' It would have been unspeakably mean and cruel of me if I had resisted it. I am afraid there is no doubt of the truth, I answered gently. I have the certainty in my own mind that our troubles in this world are over. The poor woman dropped into her chair and hid her face from me. Oh, sir, she said, how do you know it? Who can have told you? No one has told me, Mrs. Clements, but I have reasons for feeling sure of it. "'reasons which I promise you shall know "'as soon as I can safely explain them. "'I am certain she was not neglected in her last moments. "'I am certain the heart complaint from which she suffered so sadly "'was the true cause of her death. "'You shall feel as sure of this as I do soon. "'You shall know before long "'that she is buried in a quiet country churchyard, "'in a pretty peaceful place, "'which you might have chosen for her yourself.' "'Dead,' said Mrs. Clements. "'Dead so young, and I am left to bear it. "'I made her first short frocks. "'I taught her to walk. "'The first time she ever said mother, she said it to me. "'And now I am left, and Annie's taken. "'Did you say, sir?' said the poor woman, "'removing the handkerchief from her face "'and looking up at me for the first time. "'Did you say that she had been nicely buried? "'Was it the sort of funeral she might have had?' "'if she had really been my own child?' "'I assured her that it was. "'She seemed to take an inexplicable pride in my answer, "'to find a comfort in it which no other and higher considerations could afford. "'It would have broken my heart,' she said simply, "'if Anne had not been nicely buried. "'But how do you know it, sir? Who told you?' "'I once more entreated her to wait until I could speak to her unreservedly.' "'You are sure to see me again,' I said, "'for I have a favour to ask when you are a little more composed, "'perhaps in a day or two. "'Don't keep it waiting, sir, on my account,' said Mrs. Clements. "'Never mind my crying, if I can be of use. "'If you have anything on your mind to say to me, sir, "'please to say it now.' "'I only wish to ask you one last question,' I said. "'I only want to know Mrs. Catherick's address at Wilmingham.' My request so startled Mrs. Clements that, for the moment, even the tidings of Anne's death seemed to be driven from her mind. Her tears suddenly ceased to flow, and she sat looking at me in blank amazement. 
for the lord's sake sir she said what do you want with mrs catherick i want this mrs clements i replied i want to know the secret of those private meetings of hers with sir percival glide there is something more in what you have told me of that woman's past conduct and of that man's past relations with her than you or any of your neighbours ever suspected there is a secret we none of us know between those two and i am going to mrs catherick with the resolution to find it out think twice about it sir said mrs clements rising in her earnestness and laying her hand on my arm she's an awful woman you don't know her as i do think twice about it i am sure your warning is kindly meant to mrs clements but i am determined to see the woman whatever comes of it mrs clements looked me anxiously in the face i see your mind is made up sir she said i will give you the address i wrote it down in my pocket-book and then took her hand to say farewell you shall hear from me soon i said you shall know all that i have promised to tell you mrs clements sighed and shook her head doubtfully an old woman's advice is sometimes worth taking sir she said think twice before you go to welmingham End of chapter 28